Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. First of all, welcome everyone who's watching from wherever you are watching from. And I would like to spend a few minutes. This may take me a little bit of time, so I'm asking everyone to try to be a little bit patient with me. Uh, but I want to introduce our faculty because I think today we have really a unique experience, a unique opportunity. And uh, frankly, I'm very humbled to be sitting at the table with all of these people and also with somebody coming in from online. So I've got a lot of introductions to do, but I think it is critically important to do it, to lay the foundation for what we are going to be talking about today and how really incredibly important I believe that it is. And I think everyone here with me as well as coming in from, uh, from Chicago online is going to feel the same way. But seated right next to me is Dr. Luis Gabriel Navarre. He is a PhD and he is the current chair of the Department of Physiology at Tulane University in New Orleans. He has been at, is that correct? Didn't get anything wrong? And I want to make sure I get the years right. He's been there for 34 years. In fact, I'm going to read his entire bio, but I want to point a couple of things out. The Bible for perfusionists, the Bible for medical students, the Bible for anyone in medicine is Guyton's physiology. (laughs) And you worked with Dr. Arthur Guyton, the author of that. And you told me a story last night that he was planning to be a neurosurgeon, but got polio. And that's how he ended up as a physiologist, but wrote an incredible book. But nevertheless, Dr. Navarre is from, and he likes to go by Gabby, uh, is received his bachelor's degree from Texas A&M. So no, you, bachelor's. Your bachelor's, yes. That, that's, I think that's what I said. Yes. Your bachelor's. Bachelor's from Texas A&M. We forgive you for that, okay. but that's okay. <laughs> and, uh, and you received your PhD from the University of Mississippi in 1966. I was nine years old. Yeah. Under the direction of Dr. <laughs> Arthur Guyton and continued as a postdoctoral fellow and faculty member. He served on the faculties of the University of Mississippi and University of Alabama, Birmingham. In 1988, you joined Tulane, where he became professor and chair of the Department of Physiology. He is the co-founder of the Hypertension and Renal Center of Excellence, where you served as director from its inception, 2001 till 2020. Your research uh, on angiotensin and angiotensin II dependent hypertension and diabetes mellitus. You have uh, authored over 400 peer reviewed publications, including chapters and reviews. Uh, You've uh, received numerous grants from a variety of different places. You have held leadership roles, counselor and president of the American Physiological Society, the APS, and the Association of Chairs of Departments of Physiology and as chair of the leadership committee for the, of the Council for High Blood Pressure Research of the American Heart Association. Dr. Navarre is an active member of many societies and uh, you currently serve on uh, study sections for the NIH, the VA, and the American Heart Association, AHA, I have, and yeah. on editorial boards of various journals, including the American Journal of Medical Sciences. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an abridged version of Dr. Navarre's credentials 
and his bona fides for being here today to talk to us about what is this very important uh, topic about renal uh, acute kidney injury and acute uh, renal failure in the cardiac surgery patients, though he will be talking a lot about normal renal physiology, because if we don't understand that, we're not going to be able to understand why what is going wrong is going wrong. So I think we really need to get right back to the basics and then move forward from there as we continue with this talk. Next to Dr. Navar is Dr. Superporn Kutulni. She goes by Tom or Tabby. She is a perfusionist from Thailand and a PhD, which it doesn't say here on her uh, on the uh, website, Magic. We need to fix that. You attended the Nasaran University in Thailand where you received your bachelor's in cardiothoracic technology mm -hmm. back in 2004. You went on to receive your master's degree and PhD in medical physiology. In fact, you, your mentor, and you've told me about Dr. Navar now for, for a few years that, I've, that I've, I've gotten to know you, how pivotal it was for you to have the relationship you had with Dr. Navar and that he has been your mentor. You have been his student and you have a very close relationship and have done a tremendous amount of postdoctorate work on uh, renal autoregulation. Yeah. Um, you, uh, uh, you've done, of course, as I said, that research in renal physiology and uh, experimental hypertension. Uh, you worked as a perfusionist, essentially, uh, in Bangkok, uh, at Phuket Bangkok Phuket Hospital in Thailand from 2004, 2005. So, so, so Dr. Kutulni, and if I may, just, we'll just say Dr. Gabby, Dr. Tabby, make it easy for us all today. Um, you have this unique uh, uh, experience of being in the clinical environment as well as being in the laboratory mm -hmm. as a true scientist. So perfusionists like me, I'm not an I'm not an academic person. I am a clinical person. That's my world of expertise. Um, very few people have what you have, mm -hmm. and that is that joint uh experience in both the clinical environment and the laboratory environment and i think that gives you a very unique perspective that's very interesting um you were promoted chief perfusionist at the queen sirikit heart center in northeast of thailand in Khon Kaen, uh from 2009 to 2011. you took a new position as lecturer uh at the and i'm not gonna even try to say it but another big university facility in Thailand, and then took a position of lecture cardiothoracic technology program at the Chulaborn International College of Medicine in Thammasat University, which is where you know one of our guests coming in from online, Jim Murray, who came out there yeah. and did four lectures for you there. So he's a lecturer as well, which came, he came out to Thailand, I think four times and visited with you there. Actually, it's really you amazing, too. sorry? I mean, actually you too, um, at Thomas. When he came there, yeah. he was physically there. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that I'm still waiting, we're, he got invited, I'm waiting for my invitation, okay? So we <laughs> need to that. discuss that. However, um, but with that said, I think that what this is demonstrating to me is 
that what I said earlier, why you think so highly of your, what I consider to be your protege uh, in uh, physiology, is you have the clinical experience, you have the scientific experience, but you are an incredible networker. You get to know everyone, and you're the most complimentary person that I have ever met. You say the kindest things to everyone, and that makes everyone want to be around you. <laughs> and so you, it's incredible at what you've been able to do. Um, you have been an assistant uh, professor of cardiothoracic technology, which is the perfusion equivalent in Thailand, uh, at that program in Chulaborn, uh, Chulaborn and Thammasat University in Thailand, and currently you are a research associate, associate uh, at Brown University in Rhode Island, and jointly continuing to work with Dr. Navar uh, down at Tulane and uh, in New Orleans on your renal autoregulation. Yes, yes. Again, okay. this is very abridged, okay? Then we get to Kimberly Sperlin. Kimberly Sperlin is, well, <laughs> it's okay, when do you get to mine? It doesn't exist, I say nothing about, uh, uh, that's it. I'm, I can't wait until Dr. Navar starts his talk, because uh, then I can stop talking. Okay, that's very helpful. <clears throat> but Kimberly, what are, you know, we've all know Kimberly, so you've been on the program many times, people already know you, but I think for those of you who do not know her, Kimberly is a, and she's a, actually Ooh. a nurse practitioner as well, so it doesn't have that on there, and I apologize for that. We needed to get that right. With a little few things we need to fix, but Kimberly is a 20 plus, plus year critical care experienced nurse in very high level, robust cardiac surgery environment. She went on to nurse practitioner school mm -hmm. and completed your nurse practitioner training about two or three years, about four years ago, maybe. Almost, yeah, about three and a half. About yeah. three and a half, mm -hmm. four years ago. Continued to work uh, in the same area, different hospital, but specifically in cardiac surgery. And mm -hmm. all of those years of your critical care experience plus your current, which you did so much in hearts, but so many other things as well, because that was a requirement. Mm -hmm. um, but your clinical skills, your clinical acumen, your experience with seeing a problem and recognizing it is absolutely amazing to me. And uh, it's very comforting to know you're managing the patients in the critical care unit uh, post-operatively that may have problems because you really have the experience to manage these patients. Thank and you. it's a pleasure to have you back with us again today. Thank you. And, uh, and, and thank you very much for doing it. I think you're gonna be able to add some real significant perspectives on the lectures that Dr. Devar and Dr. Kutalni will be giving today, or Dr. Gabby and Dr. Tabby, as I said. <laughs> and then we have Jim Murray. Ah. Jim Murray, there's Jim. Jim, how are you, sir? Jim. Good morning, good morning. How is everyone? Good to be here. Great. It's great to see you. You look fantastic. Jim is a graduate of the Loyola University Perfusion School from 1988. Uh, he has practiced in a whole variety of places. He's been a perfusionist since 1988. And Jim has actually traveled, as I said, to Thailand and lectured at the university in Thammasat four times. Um, I'm jealous, Jim. 
I'm going with you next time, or you can stay behind and do my job, and I'm going to go do that. Um, no way. Jim is, no way. Has, wants to ride an elephant. I just want to ride an elephant. I, I actually rode an elephant oh, once good. in the circus. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite as exciting, but I did sit on it. I was just a little kid at the time. But it probably was a, a little teeny elephant. It probably wasn't even an elephant. They just dressed up something, a horse as an elephant or something. <laughs> but, uh, but with that said, Jim has, uh, is currently at Rush University where he is an academic instructor, um, obviously has years and years of experience. And you uh, did graduate, you did earn your bachelor's degree in biological sciences from Loyola. Is that correct? It was from Loyola, if I remember right. No, it was from the University of Illinois. University of uh, Illinois. My for, please forgive right, me for that. But uh, nevertheless, Jim is a well-known, uh, well-respected perfusionist throughout the world. And uh, we're so honored to have you here also to give some perspective about this, again, very important topic. So I think I've done a fairly decent job introducing everyone. I think it's lunchtime. <laughs> and uh, let's go ahead and pull up Dr. Navarre's slides, and we're going to get j right into this and start talking about the kidney. Well, I'm very pleased uh, to have the opportunity to uh, discuss uh, my uh, experience with uh, renal physiology and understanding renal hemodynamics. I thank Joe very much uh, for the invitation. And I hope I live up to his, uh, his uh, prime uh, presentation about me. <laughs> well, we know, that, uh, we know what the kidneys do, but we wonder how in the world they manage to do it all. And so we'll start with this idea. And uh, I'd like to quote something from E.H. Starling, a famous British physiologist many years ago. The kidney presents in the highest degree the phenomenon of sensibility, the power of reacting to various stimuli in a direction which is appropriate for the survival of the organism. A power of adaptation, which almost gives one the idea that its component parts must be endowed with intelligence. So the kidneys know how to regulate all our body fluids, but we don't always know exactly what it is. But just to provide a very brief review, remember that uh, the uh, intracellular volume compartment consists of about 25 liters of, of body water. And it's not a true compartment, but it's a collective volume of the fluid in all the cells through, throughout the body. However, the individual cells that regulate their own cell volume by controlling transport processes and regulating their effective solute content within the cell. In order to do this collectively, the extracellular volume, or as the, the great French uh, physiologist uh, said, uh, the uh, milieu interior is the extracellular volume which consists of approximately of 15 liters in your body fluids. But it is a fluid throughout the compartment. It is in dynamic equilibrium. We call it the internal environment. And uh, it distributed mostly in, in, in the interstitial space, but with the remainder in the vascular compartment. And it must be regulated very precisely, not only in terms of composition, total solid concentration, but also volume. So that's what Starling was referring to when he was talking about the uh, intriguing sensibility that it has. It has to know what your body fluid volumes are in order to control it properly. And it has to control every element of the composition of your body fluids correctly. Anywhere from pH to sodium concentrations to potassium, magnesium, calcium in the body, and the list goes on and on. And the kidneys have responsibilities for regulating all these different components. 
So um, we want to, uh, I, mean, I got a little too enthusiastic with the slides there. We want to remember that this interstitial fluid volume is, uh, is what's actually bathing the cells throughout the body. And the interstitial fluid volume is separated from the intracellular volume by, this, uh, by the cell membranes throughout the body. And these cell membranes are semi-permeable membranes in that they allow the, the transport of water to and from through the aquaporins that uh, we've heard so much about in, in recent years. Uh, and then through the transport processes that are regulating the intracellular solute content, the potassium, the sodium, the chloride, uh, importantly, the potassium is very low inside the cells, but very high, um, very, very high inside the cells, but very low outside the cells in the interstitial fluid. And the sodium concentration is very low in the intracellular fluid, and, but high in the extracellular fluid. So all these transport processes across the, the membrane here, that, uh, right across the cell membranes, have to be responsible for maintaining this uh, differences in concentration of the electrolytes and other substances in order to maintain the electrical activity that the membranes have to have in order to have living cells. Over here you have the peritubular capillaries or the capillaries throughout the body. These capillaries are very different from the cell membrane capillaries. They do allow the ready exchange of various substances uh, in the extracellular fluid with the exception of the plasma proteins. They have a restriction of plasma proteins, and that uh, restriction of the plasma proteins keeps the, a higher plasma protein concentration in the blood plasma, and that is what allows you to maintain your blood volume. If your protein concentrations get too dilute, as they may during cardiopulmonary bypass, you may have trouble maintaining the blood volume distribution between the interstitial fluid and the blood plasma. Well, going on, just remember that the osmolality is the critical driving force that's responsible for moving fluid across the cell membranes. It provides a collective measure of total solute concentration. And it is what we call a colligative property because it's dependent only on the number of molecules in solution, not their size, nature, or charge. And osmolality is useful whenever we consider body fluid shifts between, in particular, between the intracellular compartments and the extracellular compartment. The normal value for osmolality is approximately 290 milliosmos per liter of solution. And remember that any time the cell uh, osmolality is, is decreased for any reason, uh, the, the decrease in osmolality around the cells will cause the cell volumes to shift, and more water will go into the cell, causing cell swelling. If the concentration is too high, it'll cause cell shrinkage. Again, emphasizing the importance of maintaining the total osmolality, that is the solute concentration of the body fluid during any sort of um, procedure. And today we're focusing on cardiopulmonary bypass, but it is very important to maintain the overall solute concentration. If uh, it is not properly maintained, in particular during uh, low concentrations, which we call uh, hypoosmolality, or more commonly, uh, use term hyponatremia, which is, means low sodium concentration, uh, you will have fluid movement into the cells, and of course you might have damage throughout the body, but in the brain, it'll cause severe brain cell edema and damage to the uh, cognitive functions. Just uh, to kind of give an overall idea of all the factors that we're gonna be talking about, just remember that uh, you're, uh, 
the, the, we're using salt as an example, salt and water, because so much of the uh, extracellular fluid volume osmolality is consisting of sodium chloride. You have uh, the net balance of salt water determined by the intake and by the output. The only output that's regulated precisely is urinary excretion, <coughs> so we have to ba balance the intake with the excretion. If the intake increases, your kidneys have to know uh, that they've, the volume's going up and get rid of more volume, likewise for sodium. And so this net balance of salt and water determine the extracellular fluid volume, and as I said, that extracellular fluid volume is distributed between the interstitial volume and the blood volume, and then this blood volume is very important in the long-term control of cardiac output and arterial pressure. This is an area of research that my former mentor, Arthur Guyton, uh, worked on for many, many years, and in particular, uh, the very important relationship between arterial pressure and the renal excretion of salt water. Superimposed upon this specific relationship between the arterial pressure and the renal excretion of salt water, we have a multitude of hormone systems that respond to various signals throughout the body and send signals to the kidneys, and of course, the central nervous system that sends uh, sympathetic nerve fibers to the kidney to regulate vascular and tubular transport function. So these poor kidneys have to end up uh, having to uh, take care of uh, regulating not only the volume, but the composition of the entire extracellular fluid volume uh, through control of uh, intrarenal mechanisms which respond to the arterial pressure, the blood composition, the neural inputs, and the hormonal signals coming into the body, into the kidneys. And by doing so, it will regulate not only the uh, change in volume of the venous effluent, but the change in composition. And the kidney itself also releases certain hormones, most notably uh, the renin that's released by the kidney to uh, affect other parts of the body. So ways of communicating uh, between the kidneys and the other parts of the body. Okay, of course, the urine, we all think of, of the kidneys an important function to, uh, to form urine, but it's really the waste products. So there's no such thing as normal urine composition, but only appropriate urine composition for the condition of the patient. And of course, a, a little lymph that helps to not only return blood to the circulation. So uh, that lymph will return proteins to the circulation and also have uh, certain hormones involved. In order to do this, it has to require a very high amount of blood flow going through the kidneys. And so we uh, think in terms of the, uh, the percentage of the cardiac output that's going through the kidneys as the renal fraction. And the renal fraction may be as high as, uh, excuse me, as, as high as 20% uh, of the cardiac output. So again, a very important issue related to cardiopulmonary bypass, you've gotta keep an adequately, appropriately high bl blood flow going through the kidneys in order to maintain kidney function. So uh, again, this renal fraction is the fraction of the blood flow going to the kidney, the fraction of the cardiac output going to the kidneys and under normal conditions is 20%, but it can fall drastically during uh, hemorrhage, trauma, high sympathetic activity, um, or various uh, other uh, insults. Uh, just to put it in, con in, in the contrast, uh, the weight of, the both, of both kidneys in a 70 kilogram person is only about 300 grams. So if you divide the 1,200 milliliters per minute by the 300 grams, it comes out to be about 4 milliliters per minute per gram, which is an extraordinarily high blood flow per unit weight of the, of the organ. It, it does so uh, 
certainly for the purpose of producing uh, adequate oxygen to the various tissues. Uh, and uh, the oxygen consumption is very high, approximately uh, 16 to, to, to 20 milliliters per minute uh, for the normal blood flow. Uh, but uh, the important aspect of cardiac op of, uh, oxygen consumption is, of course, that it's distributed throughout the entire tissue, and the oxygen is necessary to maintain normal, uh, normal viability of all the different uh, cells in the body, but in particular uh, to... Uh, to provide adequate oxygenation to the very substantial transport processes that occur in the tubular system within the kidney. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the problem is it's been remarkable that, that the venous concentration isn't lower than it is of oxygen levels. Uh, it's only about between one and two milliliters of oxygen uh, tension uh, difference between the arterial blood and the venous blood. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, remarkable because it uses a tremendous amount of basal of oxygen consumption. So oxygen consumption can be divided into basal oxygen consumption, which is dependent on the total uh, oxygen uh, uh, required by, by the cells, for example, the cells of the, of the vasculature. And then the oxygen consumption required of the uh, transport systems, uh, which is primarily dependent on sodium potassium ATPase of the basolateral membranes of, of the cells in the, in the tubular tubules. And, uh, and the more that is filtered of oxygen, the more that is reabsorbed. And so the transport of oxygen consumption is, is highly dependent on the transport capability of the tubules. So without adequate oxygenation, you have severe problems to transport processes and, uh, and uh, as well as the vasculature. Um, but it's important to remember that most of the blood flow is going to the cortex of the kidney, as I've indicated there, and then approximately 15% of the blood flow goes down deep into the medulla. So by going deep, deep into the medulla, it, um, uh, it, it provides nourishment to the medulla, but it's not enough oxygen to maintain the PO2 at the same levels that the PO2 is maintained in the cortex. And I'll show you this what I'm talking about. One of the reasons this occurs is because of the close uh, continuity between the arterial system and the venous system, close, uh, closeness. And so uh, much of the oxygen that comes in the arterial blood gets shunted across into the venous components that are flowing alongside. And that occurs not only in the cortex through the venous arterials oxygen sumps, but also occurs in the medulla uh, between the ascending and descending uh, uh, ascending and descending vasa recta, and uh, as the ascending descending vasa recta bring uh, blood flow down to the medulla, there's there are oxygen sunk, uh, shunts that are occurring across uh, this uh, system, so that again the medullary oxygen tension in the lower part of the medulla is quite low compared to uh, oxygen tension in other parts of the body and even in the cortex. So that's an important consideration that is highly dependent on blood flow. And so the old model was very simple, uh, as uh, pointed out in a recent review article. The old model is uh, the blood flow goes in there and, and just like it does in other tissues, provides tissue PO2 and, you, and then you have the glomerular filtration rate that governs the total tubular reabsorption. and. and and that gives you the total oxygen consumption. But in fact, it's much more complex than that. 
the blood flow has to go, uh, has to undergo this AV shunting that occurs, and because of this AV shunting, uh, the intra tissue levels, the tissue PO2 is much lower than you might predict on the basis of the oxygen tension of the arterial blood going into the kidneys. And so you do have to pro provide adequate support for tubular uh, transport processes through tr tubular uh, oxygen consumption and through the vascular wall properties, which is the vascular wall oxygen consumption. Altogether, these determine the actual tissue PO2 in the cortex and then you have further AV shunting in the medulla. So there is a certain amount of shunting no matter what, where, what part of the kidney you're talking about. And so this, when the blood flow goes very low, you, have, uh, you, you, you can uh, compensate to a certain extent by less AV oxygen shunting, but it, it, is, uh, it, it is not sufficient to completely compensate. So when the blood flow gets very low, you still have the shunting and then you have less uh, AV uh, oxygen delivered to the tissues. And uh, this slide uh, from a, 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 the recent article I mentioned from 2008 uh, had, um, this, is, this is a data slide, but the top cortical blood flow is the top one, and uh, the next one is uh, PO2, the cortex, and then medullary blood flow, which is much lower than cortical blood flow, <coughs> and the PO2 of the medulla. And so whenever the cortical blood flow uh, goes down, you will have a lower oxygen tension in the cortex. And even if the medullary blood flow is maintained, because it's very low in the first place, so there are mechanisms that help maintain the, the medullary blood flow uh, from falling as low as the cortical blood flow, relatively speaking. Uh, but because it, it derives its oxygen from the circulation going through the cortex first, uh, to, to the preglomerular vessels anyway, uh, the medullary oxygen tension is also going to fall. So, again, maintaining adequate blood flow and adequate oxygen tension in the perfusate is very important to maintaining the ad adequate PO2 levels in the kidney. Uh, the kidneys can tolerate a certain degree of reduction in PO2 levels, but if it goes too low, then you start getting cell uh, injury. So let's, uh, let's pick up the action there uh, on, on how the arterial blood is distributed. Uh, as uh, has been shown through a number of studies, this is uh, just the architecture of the, va of the arterial vasculature uh, shown here, and all those little white specks are individual glomeruli. But the blood flow is distributed through a non-anastomotic system of arterial system that break down into the arteries, into uh, inter lobar, the arcuate, the interlobular, and then the afferent arterioles that finally deliver blood flow to the afferent arterial. And so here's a breakdown uh, of an of arterial tree in the orange coming in there, and uh, it, this, this gives rise to an afferent arterial, and that afferent arterial then gives rise to uh, the glomerular capillaries, and it's at the glomerular capillaries that the major action is present, okay? So remember that uh, it's a very complicated nephrovascular system. Here are the tubules, the tubules that are present there. And uh, this is the vasculature. The second, the middle panel shows the vasculature uh, and showing the medulla going down deep into the medulla. There's still leftover medulla down at the bottom. And then when you put it all together, you have the inter, uh, interaction between the peritubular capillaries of the postglomerular circulation and the tubules and then you have this interaction that occurs throughout the cortex 
And then a separate type of interaction that occurs uh, in the vasorecta, they go down deep into the medulla. You're stuck. Okay, just to show you uh, what's happening there from one of the uh, afferent arterioles give, that gives rise uh, to the uh, glomerular capillaries, the afferent arterial comes into the glomerular capillaries and there it distributes itself uh, throughout the glomerular capillaries and then after it goes to the glomerular capillaries it forms the efferent arterial. So there's, uh, in, in, human, in human kidneys, there's approximately 10,000 of these glomeruli uh, per gram of kidney weight. And here's a blown up section of a single glomerular capillary. Here you are, the blood flow is going into the afferent arterial, and then it distributes itself through a manifold sort of process, which then uh, goes through the various parts of the, of, the, of the kidney, various lobules within the glomerular capillary, and these lobules then coalesce back into a, uh, a vascular compartment, if you will, before it goes on to the afferent arterial, which gives rise in the cortex to the peritubular capillaries and in the medulla uh, or in the juxtamedullary portion of the, of the kidney to the vasa recta. Within each glomerular capillary, you can see the exquisite nature of these glomerular capillaries and understanding uh, how you could, might could have damage of various sorts. Uh, the, the, the filtrate within the plasma in the individual blood vessels glomerular capillaries, has to filter across this scheme through the endothelial fenestrations of the endothelium, across the basement membrane, and through the slit of, of the porocytes in order to gain access to Bowman space and the tubules. So you can imagine how this sophisticated system could, again, be easily injured. If these cells are injured and swell, you'll markedly decrease the filtering capability of the kidneys. So they have to maintain the proper integrity. And again, you can understand these individual glomerulopolocytes it's, that uh, are lifted above the basement membrane but send foot processes down into the basement membrane uh, have to be uh, maintained adequate. Any type of damage to these uh, foot processes can markedly reduce the sizes of these slit diaphragms. So again, a very sophisticated filtering system existing in each and uh, every one of your glomerular capillaries, which uh, is only about uh, a million uh, per kidney. So just to reiterate and recapitulate that uh, you have to understand that there's an endothelial glycocalyx that is a, a, a extracellular a process of, uh, of uh, very complex uh, mucopolysaccharides and proteins, uh, and then goes through the slit diaphragms of the endothelium across the basement membrane uh, in between these uh, podocyte foot processes uh, and then gains, gain uh, access to the, uh, the uh, Bowman space, which then goes on into the proximal tubule. So the importance of the glomerular capillaries in maintaining a high level of impermeability to proteins is, uh, cannot be overemphasized because if uh, an excess amount of proteins are filtered into the tubules, uh, you get proteinuria, and that's usually a, an early, one of the earliest signs of 
renal injury that you have. Um, and it's been shown that there's also a charge uh, on the membranes. Uh, there's still controversy as to how important that charge is, but it has been shown that molecules that have uh, neutral, that is no charge, um, uh, artificial molecules uh, that are synthetic molecules that do not have a charge uh, can be filtered more readily than uh, molecules that have a negative charge. And we know that most of the circulating proteins in the plasma, such as albumin, uh, do have a negative charge. So both the negative charge as well as its large size prevents the albumin from going across the cell membrane. Here's the charge on the, on the albumin, and uh, the difference between that and the predicted passage, if there was no negative charge on it, is substantial, as you can see. It could vary from less than 1% to, to close to 20%. So both the negative charges on the gel and the basal membrane um, and through, throughout the uh, system uh, repel not only the red blood cells but the, but the uh, large protein molecules from permeating into Bowman space. So this is an important uh, knowledge to, to maintain at all times because uh, w without this, you just simply would not have been able to maintain your plasma proteins. And uh, more recent studies, uh, especially as it relates to the, uh, to, to, to the uh, glomerular of human kidneys. Uh, human kidneys seem to be a little bit different from the animal uh, that we study in experimental studies. The blood goes in, makes a right angle turn right into the glomeruli, and at this point then, there is a, a afferent vascular con uh, compartment that kind of is responsible for mixing up the blood so that all parts of the of the glomerular tube lobule go, all parts uh, uh, go into the uh, various segments of the glomerular capillary, and, and that allows you to distribute the blood evenly. And then there's also an efferent vascular compartment that gathers all the blood from the various branches throughout the kidney and uh, then distributes on to the efferent arterial. So that high, so there's a combination of forces. There's, a, there's a two, two major forces that we have to consider in terms of the amount of fluid that's filtering across the glomerular membrane. First of all, you have the net hydrostatic pressure, which is the main driving force uh, causing the fluid movement from inside the glomerular capillaries uh, into, the, into the Bowman space. And that's maybe as much as uh, 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury pressure. So that's driving, that's the main driving force for make, moving the fluid into the kidney, into the Bowman space. But it's, con it, it's counteracted by the colloid osmotic pressure or of, the, of the plasma. And it's that high colloid osmotic pressure of the plasma that offsets a very large percentage of the hydrostatic pressure. Not only that, because of the fluid that is filtered is protein free, then the proteins continuously increase their concentration as they traverse the glomerular capillaries. And then as they traverse the glomerular capillaries, they'll go on into the efferent arterial at a much higher colloid osmotic pressure. So one has to consider the average colloid osmotic pressure within the glomerular capillaries, which again is in the range of about 30 millimeters of mercury for human kidneys. So collectively, you have what we call the net or effective filtration pressure. You see, the effect that net or effective filtration pressure is the hydrostatic pressure gradient minus the colloid osmotic pressure, leaving a relatively small value 
to be actually responsible for the driving force across the fluid. So you can imagine that a small decrease in this effective filtration pressure caused by a small decrease in, in hydrostatic pressure could cause a relatively larger change in GFR, which is a, a rate of filtration of fluid into Bowman space. So when we put all these together, we have this scheme uh, that I've shown in various textbooks uh, that we have the high osmotic pressure coming into the kidneys, uh, being concentrated as they traverse the glomerulocapillaries, and then the effective filtration pressure uh, is, a, as I said, approximately nine millimeters of mercury, and that effective filtration pressure uh, multiplied by the filtration coefficient of the individual glomerular capillaries themselves gives you the glomerular filtration rate. Now, as the fluid then goes into the peritubular capillaries, which surround the tubules, uh, it go goes in at a very high osmotic pressure. And that high osmotic pressure allows you to reabsorb the fluid that is being transported by the tubules back into the interstitial spaces. So it's a very important scheme that occurs where it, in, in, the in the glomerular capillaries, the hydrostatic pressure predominates that allows the filtration to occur, and then the osmotic pressure predominates in the peritubic capillaries, and that allows, that allows the fluid to be reabsorbed back into the capillaries and out in the renal vein. And so you can imagine how it's very important to maintain these forces and flows at a normal or op appropriate optimal level in order to have uh, and support the overall tubular transport characteristics of the, of the tubules. So here you have uh, all these uh, glomeruli, as I said, about 10,000 per gram of kidney weight, uh, giving rise to proximal convoluted tubules, where about 60% of the salt and water is reabsorbed, uh, and then going on to the rest of the nephron, which includes the uh, proximal straight tubule, the desane lupahendli, the assane lupahendli, where another uh, so 20, 30% of the salt is reabsorbed, and, and, and then the distal convoluted tubule leading to the cortical collecting duct and the medullary collecting duct, and which allows you to end up properly regulating and reabsorbing what is necessary for the kidneys to uh, appropriately maintain your, your uh, body fluid composition and excreting uh, in less than about 1% of the salt and water that is filtered in, in the, in the uh, urine. So it's a very complicated scheme, uh, but it seems to do the job, so we have to understand how it works. All of these forces that I mentioned, both at the glomerular and the peritubular capillary, have to be regulated properly in terms of both blood flow and pressures. To do that, we divide the renal vascular resistance. Collectively, the renal vascular resistance can be thought of as to have being responsible, uh, being uh, consisting of the forces and uh, influences of the renal nerves, the influences of the hormones and plasma composition, and also the intrinsic control mechanisms. Uh, these intrinsic control mechanisms are very important. Uh, they're responsible for autoregulation, and we'll be discussing autoregulation in, in some detail because it's, it's quite important to the scene. So this regulation of renal vascular resistance is, is important, and it, uh, the arterial pressure divided by the vascular resistance gives you the renal blood flow that occurs as overall. But we know that it's distributed throughout the different parts of the kidney. So here's a, a pressure, comp, uh, pressure profile. 
the, the large pressure drop along the afferent arterioles because of the resistance consisting of the afferent arterioles. And then you have the maintenance of glomerular pressure within the glomerular capillaries. Then the pressure falling along the efferent arterial and down to the peritubic capillaries when you have the reabsorption. And so collectively, these uh, are very important in maintaining both the afferent arterial resistance as well as the efferent arterial resistance. And uh, again, just for those of you that want to know numbers, blood flow through the kidneys about 1.2 uh, milliliter, uh, liters per minute or 1,200 milliliters per minute. Of that, uh, about 680 milliliters per minute are plasma. From that plasma, about 130 milliliters per minute are filtered. And that filtration fraction is, again, about 20%. So that gives you an idea of, of the uh, forces that are going on. But, you, but in order to do that, you have to have regulation. Regulation of all these vascular smooth muscle cells throughout the, body, throughout the vasculature of the kidney that have to con contract, uh, constrict and dilate appropriately to maintain these forces. So here's an example of uh, afferent arterials uh, lined up going right into the, uh, the glomerular capillaries within the, the renal corpuscle. And, uh, and likewise, there's also vascular smooth muscles in the efferent arterials. So those vascular smooth muscles really, in many ways, are vascular smooth muscles very similar to those throughout your body. And uh, calcium plays a very important role in maintaining the vascular tone and in responding to various signals through various calcium channels. You also have an, a multitude of receptor-operated channels that regulate uh, cyclic GMP, for example, cyclic AMP, uh, phospholipase uh, C, and, and many other intracellular enzymes and uh, drivers uh, the, of the active myosin light chain kinase. And, and uh, which determine the amount of phosphorylated myosin, myosin light chain and the tension development. So when calcium levels are reduced by blocking the calcium channels, you have vasodilation. Uh, when the calcium channels are upregulated through receptor-operated channels or voltage-operated channels, then you have more calcium, uh, also calcium released from the, from the intercellular stores, uh, which can all contribute to uh, the uh, binding of calcium commodulin and then driving the, the, the tension development. So this occurs uh, throughout the vasculature system uh, and uh, different hormones and different systems play slightly different roles in the various parts of the vasculature and that's what, uh, again, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to understand these differences. So you can then uh, analyze it and say, okay, when preglomerular constricts, when an agent or substance causing preglomerular constriction, that's going to cause reduction in blood flow, but reduction in glomerular pressure as well, and reduction in glomerular filtration rate, and reduction in peritubular capillary and interstitial pressure. So high preglomerular constriction is associated with reduction in blood flow, reduction in filtration rate, and accordingly reduction in sodium excretion and urine flow. Quite often, you have agents that cause combined preglomerular and efferent constriction. And when that occurs, you may have uh, either no change or slight increases in glomerular pressure. You may have increases in glomerular chloroosmotic pressure. 
uh, less percent change in GFR than blood flow, and you'll still have a paratubular capillary and decreases in renal interstitial pressure, which again is consistent with uh, augmentation of reabsorption rate and reduction in urine flow and sodium excretion. And then you can have uh, regulation or patho either physiological or pathological regulation of the filtration coefficient. For example, anything that makes the basement membrane thicker, or anything that uh, shuts down the endothelial fenestrations or the slit diaphragms can decrease the filtration coefficient, which will cause decreases in GFR. And uh, under those conditions, there may be some changes in glomerular pressure caused by regulatory mechanisms, which I'll be discussing, but an overall less change in blood flow than GFR. And under those conditions, you have maintenance of peritubular capillary and renal interstitial pressure. So it is a complex system that requires, auto rate, that requires control by many systems other than uh, uh, that, that include both the intrinsic and extrinsic. Do you want to have a break and see if there's any questions, or you want to go on? Um, no, I think we can. I think we can go on. What do you think? Okay. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think. Uh, I don't want to just be the one talking all the time, but we'll we'll, we'll that'll change. Well, what would you like to do? No, I think it's fine. If anybody wants, if anybody has no any, one is uh, saying anything. We're we're just keep gaining okay. people watching. So okay. everybody's watching. If anybody feels like we need to take a break, just let us know online. <laughs> But I think we should keep going, unless you don't want no, to. No, this is fine. Now we're going to the regulation that occurs. And in particular, a very important part of regulation is autoregulation. And we're going to talk about this because there's a combination of two important uh, categories. We call intrinsic control mechanisms. That is, those mechanisms that are internal to the kidney. Uh, we often refer to that as autoregulation. Uh, we also talk about it in terms of paracrine factors because there may be more than one factor influencing autoregulation. And I also mentioned this very fascinating system that I've been studying for better than 30 years, which we call the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism. But uh, in particular, under conditions where you might have cardiopulmonary bypass, you might have a, a number, a myriad of extrinsic factors that play an important role in influencing what's happening to the kidney. And that may be not only the physiological mechanism, but the pathophysiological mechanisms that could uh, be responsible for altering uh, kidney function and uh, making it be less than appropriate. So let's uh, think in terms of the intrinsic mechanisms. And the first intrinsic mechanism that I want to emphasize is uh, the autoregulation. And autoregulation over a period of many years has been proven, has been studied by uh, using an artificial system in which you uh, measure the renal blood flow directly and uh, either measure the renal arterial pressure uh, directly through a, a series of uh, clamps. And so luckily for many of us, we have a wide range of autoregulation. This is called the autoregulatory range. And over this autoregulatory range, uh, changes, physiological alterations in arterial pressure will lead to uh, alterations in intrarenal function such that blood flow remains normal, constant. We, we call it constant because there is this plateau. And then once you go below a certain pressure, around 75 millimeters of mercury for human subjects, then after that, your autoregulatory capability is exhausted, and then you have a decrease in renal blood flow as blood pressure falls. What's unique about the autoregulatory mechanism is that it seems to be focused primarily in regulating the afferent arterial resistance. 
This is the afferent arterial resistance as it goes into the glomerular capillaries. And if the blood pressure falls, the afferent arterial resistance goes up. If the pressure goes up, the afferent arterial goes down. And this allows you not only to maintain renal blood flow constant over this range, but it also allows you to maintain glomerular filtration rate constant sometimes. And it does that by maintaining the glomerular pressure as well as the, uh, and then it subsequently that, it leads to regulation of proximal tubular pressure, capillary pressure, and even interstitial fluid pressure. So that's the autoregulatory mechanism, a very exquisite system. Over this range, the efferent arterial resistance is maintained relatively stable, but at lower arterial pressures, you might have increases in efferent resistance, which can occur um, in response to changes that occur in the intrarenal renin uh, angiotensin system. So that our regulatory mechanism has two components that's very important. One is the myogenic uh, component, uh, which occurs in vascular uh, tissue throughout the body, in many different parts of the body. And this myogenic mechanism is, is quite intriguing in the sense that every time you have a stretching of the vessel wall by, uh, by for example, increases in internal pressure. Uh, then there increases tension. There's an increase in tension, uh, or, or what we call tangential tension, or hoop stress, uh, on the vessel wall. This hoop stress stimulates tension receptors, which we're still uh, trying to understand, but they seem to be geared to uh, calcium entry. And uh, these tension re receptors can either dilate or can, uh, cause either dilation or constriction. Uh, and so if the pressure goes up, uh, there's a, a te the, the tension receptors then lead to constriction, uh, which allows you to lower the radius of the blood vessels uh, and bringing the blood flow back down to normal or toward normal. So that's your myogenic response that is very similar to what occurs throughout the other parts of the body. But in the kidney, you have this very fascinating system uh, that, is, uh, that shows that there's a very important interrelationship between the, macula, between the tubules and the vasculature. And this feedback occurs at the level of the macula densa, which, is, um, which uh, are cells that are unique uh, and at the end of the ascending lupa henle, and these unique cells then send signals to the afferent arterial, and those signals to the afferent arterial cause either constriction or dilation. These have been studied for a number of years using what we call micropuncture techniques. And by studying mic micropuncture, we can put pipettes in the proximal tubule. Uh, we can block the tubule, and then we can put perfusion pipettes and regulate the amount of fluid going to the rest of the nephron. And just in that one nephron, then we can study the effects of increases or decreases in flow or changes in composition. And it has been shown over a period of years that this autoregulation mechanism is, is reduced markedly uh, when, the block, when there's blockade of flow to the rest of the nephron segment. So when there's reduced flow due to blockade of flow through the macula densa, then you have vasodilation of the afferent arterial and reduced capability to autoregulate. Likewise, if we increase the flow too hard, then you have a autoregulation that occurs at a lower level. 
So there is evidence that the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism provides an important additional regulatory mechanism that responds to the signals. Uh, and this is a true negative feedback system that we study in physiology in many, in many systems. That is, in response to, for example, an increase in arterial pressure, you would transiently have an increase in glomerular pressure and plasma flow. Then you would have a, an increase in filtration rate, and you would have part of that increase in filtration rate would have been, will be reabsorbed through the process of glomerular tubular balance, but you'll still have increases in flow to the rest of the nephron. And so as the flow goes through the assay and loop of Henle, there are flow-related changes in osmolality and sodium chloride concentration, which signal these macular denser cells, cells that I showed you uh, to uh, sense the change and then transmit a signal from the macular densa to the afferent arterial in a direction opposite to that effect caused by the change in arterial pressure. So the arterial pressure goes up, the preglomerular resistance goes up uh, in order to bring the glomerular pressure and plasma flow back down. If the arterial pressure goes down, the preglomerular resistance goes down so that the glomerular pressure and plasma flow can come back to normal. That helps maintain the filtration rate which allows you to maintain normal transport capabilities throughout the nephron. So we'll be talking primarily about these mechanisms that, that lead to the changes in uh, vascular resistance. But superimposed uh, on that normal autoregulatory mechanism, we, we, we see that this is a very dynamic mechanism that is uh, fully adjustable in response to the uh, volume and demands of the body. When you have a, uh, a high extracellular fluid volume that might occur under conditions such as this, the sensitivity of the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism is markedly reduced. And that occurs when the nitric oxide levels go up, when there's high prostaglandin levels, when there's calcium channel blockade. And when there's high angiotensin levels, you might have then a high sensitivity of the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism, allowing you to have a reduced delivery of solid water to the rest of the nephron for any given GFR. This occurs under conditions where you want to be able to uh, retain as much of your salt and body fluid as, 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 you, as possible, and that occurs by various factors that are associated primarily with uh, high levels of angiotensin II, that is activation of the angiotensin system, and uh, other systems that we'll, we'll discuss uh, shortly. So this is a the very important intrarenal mechanism that is capable of maintaining normal perfusion rate, GFR, and transport capabilities under optimal or normal physiological conditions. But superimposed on that, you have various factors that may disrupt this uh, unique balance. So the, the autoregulation of the glomerular feedback mechanism maintain the hemodynamic inputs in balance with tubular metabolic function. And, 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 and that's a very important normal physiological function, but there are acute circumstances that may be superimposed that influence the ability to properly autoregulate. And these are all these various uh, hormones uh, uh, resulting from uh, a high activity of, uh, of uh, say, a, adrenal release of uh, epinephrine, high levels of angiotensin II when the renal angiotensin system is stimulated, uh, a, a, a myriad of other 
uh, vasoconstrictor hormones, which I'll just list as endothelin plus others. And there's also a variety of vasodilator hormones that are produced either within the kidney or in other parts of the body, which may cause vasodilation stimuli. So all these factors then have to be thought of and brought into play when one considers what happens during altered physiological states or in pathological states. So you have various prostaglandins, uh, bradykinin, which is an important factor, atrial natriuretic peptide coming from the heart, and uh, levels of nitric oxide produced by the endothelial cells. Well, obviously the renal angiotensin system is a very important regulatory mechanism then. And, and the renal angiotensin system, interesting enough, is both an intrinsic and an extrinsic factor. It can be intrinsic in that you can have uh, alterations in the intrarenal uh, level of angiotensin II, but it can also be an extrinsic system in that angiotensin II may be formed within the circulation and influence the kidney as a circulating hormone. And uh, it's, 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 it's a complex system that requires a lecture in and of itself, but in response to a number of various factors such as reduced sodium chloride intake, reduced arterial pressure, extracellular fluid volume depletion, any kind of stress or trauma will signal the baroreceptors and uh, through either the baroreceptors or the macular densa or the sympathetic nervous system to release uh, renin from the juxtaparameter cells. That renin is uh, released in response to decreases in cytosolic calcium or increases in cyclic AMP. That renin then is then um, going uh, and then allows the cleavage of a decapeptide or angiotensin one uh, from a large molecule released by the liver primarily, and that angiotensin one is then acted on by angiotensin converting enzyme, and that angiotensin converting enzyme will form angiotensin two, and that angiotensin two then uh, acts on a number of different receptors to cause biological actions throughout the body and certainly very important actions within the kidney as well. So that uh, those juxtaparameral cells, those granular cells of, uh, of the afferent arterial uh, will release renin, and that renin will form angiotensin II as, as shown. And um, with, without going into too great a detail, the elevated intrarenal angiotensin II levels can cause vascular and uh, afferent and efferent arterial dilation can cause the increase, that's one of the factors that causes increased sensitivity of the tuberculosis feedback mechanism. It can also decrease the filtration coefficient uh, so that for any given effective filtration pressure, there's less filtration rate. And it's been shown that the angiotensin II levels can also enhance proximal tubular reabsorption in various nephron segments. At first, the thought is it was thought to be only proximal tubule, but now that we know that, that it enhances uh, reabsorption rate in, in many different parts of the nephron. So angiotensin II is a very important factor. And again, during any traumatic procedure, uh, we have to be alert to what might be happening what, to the renal angiotensin system and whether that renal angiotensin system is causing undue <coughs> vas vasoconstriction. Moving on to uh, endothelial factors that may influence autoregulation and may also cause direct vasodilation. The endothelial cells lining the, 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 the blood vessels throughout the body, in particular, uh, very responsive in the uh, arterial system. And um, if you, 
if you here, let go for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. If you push and hold. Yeah. Until you see the light, then okay. it'll work. Until you see the light. Until you see the light. Right. So here's the endothelial cell. They respond to various forces within the blood vessels, in particular shear stress and a, uh, and a number of other factors through insulin, I mean through uh, receptors. And that, uh, that endothelial cell, those endothelial cells may release nitric oxide, uh, can also release various prostanoids, various factors of the prostaglandin system, and uh, under normal conditions, it can primarily release vasoconstrictor, vasodilating factors such as nitric oxide, uh, but under conditions of uh, pathophysiology, it may uh, switch to release constricting factors, and those constricting factors then may cause undue vasoconstriction to the kidney. So you can see again that it's, that it's a complicated system that's not, that, that has to be studied for a specific set of conditions. This, as I mentioned, the prostaglandin system may be a very important af aspect also causing regulation. And, and we're, we're, there's, there's, important, uh, there's important components of the prostaglandin system or the arachidonic acid metabolite system more correctly in the sense that uh, through uh, the phospholipase A2 that releases arachidonic acid from the membranes may either be processed through the cyclooxygenase enzymes, which are, of course, very, very important, but also through the cytochrome P450 enzymes and lipoxygenase systems. Um, the cyclooxygenase systems, as you know, uh, include both uh, uh, COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes, which, uh, which are very important in um, in, in, in causing inflammation in certain conditions, and that's why uh, these medicines that are cyclooxygenase inhibitors are so important. But it can also, under normal conditions, cause the release of vasodilator hormones, which uh, compensate for excess vasoconstriction uh, and cause vasodilation. But, uh, but, but the system is, is really complex because of this. The system is really complex because because uh, it can also cause, uh, through thromboxane synthase, vasoconstrictor hormones that may be more uh, in, involved, again, during hypertension or pathophysiology. So uh, ser several of the products of the cytochrome P450 uh, either cause, can cause either vasodilation or vasoconstriction. And so there's individuals that just simply concentrate the research just on this system alone. And then you also have the lipoxygenase system that may be a little bit less important in the kidney, but also can be associated with the release of, of uh, substances, metabolites, that cause renal vasoconstriction. Um, while while it's, it's somewhat, sorry, somewhat general, the, uh, what you can think of it in, in normal physiology, uh, normal physiology, you primarily have a protective effect of the prostaglandin system. Pathophysiology, you might start engaging the pathophysiological influence of metabolites which cause excess vasoconstriction and excess reabsorption rate. So again, the, the products of uh, the arachidonic acid metabolism may be very important in regulating uh, blood flow through the kidney. Um, a good example of what happens uh, this was done uh, in, 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 uh, under, in patients with uh, sodium depleted and sodium depleted and sodium replete conditions. If you, have, if you have plenty of 
If you have, uh, if you have plenty of, uh, of body fluid, extracellular volume is normal, your uh, total amount of solium, uh, sodium in the body is normal, uh, that we call a sodium replete condition. If you take a, a, a drug that blocks uh, the cyclooxygenase, which we call a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, uh, not much will happen either to GFR or to renal blood flow. You'll have a small effect because you're blocking a, a slight vasodilator effect of, of prostaglandins. On the other hand, if you're in sodium depleted condition, extracellular fluid volume depletion or low volume or pathophysiological conditions, and you take a non anti-inflammatory drug, you may have substantial decreases in blood flow and substantial decreases in GFR. So this, again, is something we want to uh, protect against in, in patients, protect against uh, seeing, uh, having patients uh, be uh, excessive, uh, have too much of a decrease in, in volume, become, become sodium depleted, or, or during hemorrhage, shock, other conditions, you might activate the, uh, you might activate renal vasoconstrictor signals, uh, stimuli, and, and, and uh, if you take a non anti-inflammatory drug under those conditions, you might have a, a larger than you would expect decrease in blood flow and GFR. Then we also have uh, a, a, a number of other hormones. I'm going to use the atrial peptide as an example, uh, but there are other hormones released in other parts of the body. But this is a very good example of how the heart speaks to the kidney. There are, uh, we, know, we know that in, the, um, that in the atrium of the heart, you have atrial stretch receptors that have a, well, atrial, uh, a natriuretic peptide. That responds to intrathoracic blood volume. So if intrathoracic blood volume is, uh, is high, you have a stimulus of the, uh, a, a certain amount of atrial stretch, which will cause release of atri atrial natriuretic peptide. And atrial natriuretic peptide will go to cause vasodilation of the vasculature within the kidney, the decreased vascular resistance. Uh, it will also cause a inhibition of aldosterone, inhibition of renin release, and thereby cause a decrease in tubular sodium reabsorption, which collectively, not a, the decreased vascular resistance as well as the, as well as the other non-vascular effects of atrial natriuretic peptide will allow you to have an increase in sodium excretion which will restore your extracellular fluid volume and blood volume back to normal. However, if the volume is too high, you have the increased natresis, and you'll bring the, the blood volume back down. If the intrathoracic blood volume is low, you, you'll restore, you'll, you'll inhibit the atrial natriuretic peptide, and you'll, re, and you'll uh, have more retention of salt and water. And then, of course, what must be considered is our, our renal, uh, renal nerve effects. Uh, there's many different examples of this, but uh, just to show you in this cartoon, uh, when you have high levels of either circulating epinephrine levels or high levels of renal sympathetic tone, you'll have vascular constriction of, the, of both the preglomerular and postglomerular vessels. But we know there's a lot more vascular smooth muscle in the preglomerular vessels and likewise, therefore, they'll cause more decrease in uh, diameter, uh, increasing resistance of these preglomerular vessels, causing a decrease in glomerular pressure, leading to decreases in filtration rate, uh, and de as well as decreases in blood flow. And here's an example uh, caused by laboratory stimulation uh, of, of renal nerves, showing that this is the, uh, 
the uh, segmental vascular resistance. This is the precomerular resistance here. Precomerular resistance here. And uh, initially, both precomerular and postcomerular resistance increased to about the same extent, leading to, uh, to combined decreases in blood flow and GFR. But then you have, uh, as you increase the uh, nerve stimulation, the precomerular resistance ex exceeds the postcomerular resistance, leading to a greater decrease in GFR than you do blood flow. Again, uh, factors that have to be considered in any kind of pathophysiological condition, such as might occur uh, in cardiopulmonary bypass. Here's an example of what might happen during hemorrhage from an interesting study that was produced uh, not too long ago. You have high, for in, in regard to hem in response to hemorrhage, you'll have, of course, a decrease in blood pressure, and you have then um, the carotid sinus, aortic arc reflexes, causing a marked increase in activity of the renal sympathetic nervous system. Uh, this can cause direct renal secretion. The decrease of arterial pressure can cause the increased renal secretion. That can lead to increases in plasma and intrarenal renin, which can increase plasma and intrarenal angiotensin II levels, which can constrict the renal arterioles. And that, combined with the increase in sympathetic tone, can cause a marked decrease in blood flow and GFR, which can cause a marked decrease in sodium excretion. And uh, uh, there's also uh, associated effects to increase, enhance the efficiency of, of tubular salt reabsorption. And collectively, then, you have marked decreases in sodium excretions uh, um, by the kidneys. So you, 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 uh, you can ex expect to have a marked decrease. Uh, the body's trying to have a maximum retention of whatever salt and water is present, is still present in the body. And so you have signals then causing uh, marked decreases in urine flow, marked decreases in sodium excretion, and conservation of body fluid volumes. So these are the many ways that uh, we can go back to what Dr. Starling said, that uh, the kidneys uh, have a sensibility to do the right thing. And uh, something that uh, Dr. Moberg said many years ago, uh, we, know that, uh, we know that the kidney knows how to regulate salt and water balance, but we do not. Uh, just uh, uh, f finishing up, uh, I do want to mention, uh, I, I get more and more interested in what happens to uh, body function, physiology with aging. Uh, and you can see there, even under normal, even under normal situations, uh, we know that there's a certain amount of uh, increase in pressure, uh, increases in uh, systolic arterial pressure that occurs with aging. Uh, and uh, along with that, there's uh, decreases in GFR. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. Just do that and then yeah, right. push and hold. And uh, there is a progressive decrease in creatinine clearance uh, uh, as uh, an individual ages. Uh, that may be caused by both physiology and pathophysiology, but we know that in general it occurs uh, in the population. And so we have to be alert to what happens to uh, kidney function in, in older patients. Uh, and remembering that you have to uh, recognize that the older patients may be much more sensitive to alterations uh, because they probably have a lower initial uh, creatinine clearance or glomerular filtration rate. So, um, sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's all right. 
So we've gone through a lot. I, I understand it completely. We've gone through a lot. And just simply to reiterate to everybody, we have tubular grammar feedback. And our regulation is a very important mechanism for altering filtered load and, uh, uh, and to maintain, maintaining balance uh, with metabolically determined tubular reabsorption processes. And uh, the tubular grammar feedback mechanism will maintain GFR renal blood flow under normal conditions uh, during physiological regulations in arterial pressure. Uh, this can occur during sleep, during moderate exercise, and other conditions. We have the importance of the renin-angiotensin system, which can alter the level of hemodynamic function in accord with the status of sodium balance, can stimulate sodium reabsorption, increases the sensitivity of the tubular mirror feedback mechanism, and reduces renal blood flow and GFR. Then you have the prostaglandin systems, which are certainly one of the most complex systems in the body. They can activate both vasoconstrictor and vasodilator systems, but under physiological conditions, it may partially counteract the actions of angiotensin II. And then you have the myriad of, of neural and adrenergic uh, input that might occur from uh, both the uh, activation of the uh, sympathetic nervous system as well as the uh, uh, adrenergic system from the medulla of the, of the adrenal gland, uh, which can uh, cause... Uh, a certain amount of interaction with overall need to maintain sodium balance, and then to respond immediately to uh, serious emergency conditions. Um, I can't imagine under cardiopulmonary bypass, which, which that, don't, that would not be considered a serious uh, emergency condition. Uh, with the students, with the medical students, we usually give them with performance objectives, and I, I just have this listed. I'm not going to go through them, but these are the sort of things that we've discussed, uh, or at least I've discussed over the period of the last hour and a half or so, and I hope that it provides us with a, a better um, working, uh, working model of, of how things might go wrong in the kidney uh, under various conditions, uh, in particular cardiopulmonary bypass. Thank you very much for listening. I pre uh, thank you very much. I'm open to any questions you might have uh, that may clarify any of the issues I described. That was uh, awesome, but I just need to ask if I can. We're going to start with uh, Jim. Um, do do we get a nephrology license now? <laughs> just the beginning. Just this is just the beginning, just which scare, which really, beginning. which really frightens me. Yeah. Um, we have a. Uh, I've been trying to keep up, and we have a lot of online questions, um, but I need to. Uh, defer if i can please to jim jim you want to kick us off here you've been uh patiently waiting there i wish you were here with us we have an extra seat but uh let me let you kick it off with any questions you may have or any of your students may have asked you and then uh i can move on to the online questions and maybe kimberly as well there okay great joe thank you uh dr navarre what a Fantastic review. What a, a fantastic presentation. Um, I think all of us out here, we sometimes need to press the reset button and go over some things that we may have forgotten. We not for a while and we need to review this. So um, thank you very much for that talk. Um, a couple of things. Um, when we sit behind a pump and we're thinking about the the optimal pressure, the optimal flow. And what struck me, my first question that 
I would have to come up with would be... Hold on. We lost your voice. Yeah, we lost the sound. We can't hear him anymore. Hello, hello. Hello, 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 hello. No, but we can't hear him. Hello, hello. How about now? How about now? <laughs> he's he's talking. We can't hear him. How about now? Yes. Anything yeah. now? Hey, you, yes. Now can we hear me can now? hear you. Yes. <laughs> can you hear me now? Can you hear yes. me? Yes. Yes. Did you hear anything I said? Yes, about the first two words. <laughs> you know, you were at the point you were going to. Uh, you were talking about behind the pump and perfusion pressure. Okay, yes. Um, you've given us reason to think about the pressures and the flows, but my question to you is, is there an optimal prime, an optimal, uh, optimal solutions that we should put into the heart-lung heart machine before we go on bypass? Uh, I know a lot of us use mannitol, albumin, um, along with the heparin and the bicarb and the plasmolite. Uh, as far as you know, is there an optimal prime solution to, to, to protect and to benefit the kidney? Well, I think what you said is important. You, you really want to wanna mimic the extracellular fluid concentration and composition to the best extent that you can. Obviously, you can't put every last thing that's in that, but you want to have, certainly you want to maintain an adequate osmotic pressure because without that osmotic pressure, you, you won't maintain the blood in the, vas in, in the, in the vasculature. Uh, so, uh, with, with albumin, uh, you, you want to be able to make sure that the albumin concentrations are at least as high as they are in, in normal conditions, uh, and perhaps maybe even higher because you're, you're probably diluting the other uh, larger uh, proteins such as globulins and fibrinogen, which, which, which play a, a reasonably significant part of the total osmotic pressure. So you got to make up for that with albumin. Um, now, if the, if the integrity of the capillary membranes is damaged, then you might not be able to maintain the osmotic pressure, but, but you want to try. So you have to have an adequate osmotic pressure and then mimic the extracellular fluid composition to the best extent possible uh, within practical limits. Mm -hmm. That's okay, a, which... Go ahead, Jim, I'm sorry. Which leads me question. to... Well, which leads me to... And... Sometimes we operate on patients who that morning have come from home who are relatively healthy. Other times we've, we've operated on patients who've been in the ICU for two weeks, who are decompensated uh, in some way. So it almost seems like you need to tailor your prime, you need to tailor every technique that we do based on our patient situation. Would yes. you agree? Yes. In particular, some patients in, in the ICU may be hyponatremic. You want to be sure that uh, you don't cause uh, changes in sodium concentration. For example, if the patient is, is substantially hyponatremic and has been that way for several days or even weeks, uh, and you hit it with a normal isotonic uh, saline solution, it may be hypernatremic for that patient. 
and may cause cell swelling, for example. So, I'm sorry, cell, cell, uh, cell constrictions, uh, cell volume decrease. So you wanna, you wanna make sure that, the, what, that you match the sodium balance um, of the patient, but I would agree that you, you wanna be able to, to take into consideration what the situation is for the specific patient being, uh, being evaluated at the time. Now, I know this is okay. mostly neurologic, in, but bringing uh, to your point, Jim, and, and uh, referring to that, if you do have somebody who is hyponatremic, you do have to be concerned about over correcting it too rapidly for yes. demyelination mm -hmm. syndrome, which right. would be Absolutely. lethal. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's a, that is a, a, a real concern that we you know, look and see if this patient has significant hyponatremia, that we not just correct it back to normal, that we manage that in a more appropriate way. That's right. That's right. That, that's, an, uh, uh, that's quite an important area. And, and no matter, uh, it's so often you hear about situations where patients in particular that, that were not in, in, in hospitalized, they were ambulatory, but taking long-term um, diuretics that might cause hyponatremia, and the patient had completely adapted to that condition of hyponatremia. Uh, and then uh, somebody thought that they better correct it, uh, and they correct it as they would be correcting acute hyponatremia. So uh, that can cause a serious, as you said, a, a neurological situations. Yes. Irreparable yes. sometimes. Yeah, because people, like, for myself, like myself, many people have SIADH, and they're chronically hyponatremic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I walk around, you know, I, I walk, you know, they're always telling me, you know, your sodium, wanting to recheck my sodium. No, it's okay, I have SIADH, I'm used. It's fine, I'm adapted to it. But my sodium, if I were to be admitted to the critical care unit, they would replace my sodium. And that could be bad. Right, but they would likely do it, depending on what hospital I go to, <laughs> likely in a way that is, consistent with the gradual uh, oh, replacement. Okay. Do it, you know, versus acutely. But if you go someplace that doesn't know or doesn't mm. just isn't thinking, I mean, that is, uh, like I said, that could be elite. And for us, we, we prime our pumps way in advance of the time we ever see our patient. We see the patient for the first time. We usually see the chart for the first time. When the patient rolls into the operating room, the pump's already primed and ready mm. to go. And if you're using plasma light, you have a more normal sodium level, about 140. But if you're using sodium chloride, which many people do use, now you have a sodium of 154. Ooh. So that's you know going to be uh, it's a big salt load. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that is something that we I think could do a lot better job at is knowing our patients uh, ahead of time. We generally do not. Like I told you, the thing, whole reason we're doing this kidney thing, um, and I do wanna get to these questions, please forgive me. I know there's been a lot of questions that have come over online. Uh, Magic, just out of curiosity, what is our total viewership right now? Three fifty. So, and I can't answer. I can't ask all of the questions, but I'm going to ask. Thank you, Magic. I'm going to try to get to the ones. But that is a, what Jim just said is a question that get, got brought up uh, with several other people, and that is on the albumin level. Um, there's a big debate on whether to add albumin to the pump, not al add albumin to the pump, mm -hmm. treat 
uh, hypoalbuminemia, not treat hypoalbuminemia, treat it aggressively, don't treat it aggressively. And not only do we have very typically hypoalbumic states, we are also hemodiluting the red blood cells, which is our strongest uh, oncotic uh, pressure contributor. So we get a double whammy, anemia and hypoalbuminemia on top of it. So, and then dilution of the, as you said, the other large uh, proteins like globulin and so forth. And it's a huge problem. How much does that affect what Jim is talking about and what we're doing and what should we, you know, how is that going to make the, the, renal, the, the renal function perioperatively and postoperatively, how is it going to affect it? Well, I mean, the bottom line is if you don't maintain the cholinotomotic pressure, you're going to lose volume to the interstitial spaces. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess you can tolerate a certain amount of that that occurs and we're going to normal correct in a patient sub- following surgery. But, but if it's too much, you're going to have trouble maintaining blood pressure for one ring because the, the tissue, and, and you're going to really swell up not only in the kidney, but you're going to swell up the interstitial spaces throughout the body. You could cause uh, excessive pressure in the brain as well, even though it's not intracellular. Um, I think there's a lot of potential uh, deleterious consequences of uh, not having an adequate colon osmotic pressure. I think that's that says it all. That says that says it all. Jim, did you have a follow up or another question? No, no. Just very simply, uh, for me personally, there's nothing worse than doing a long case. And after the case, you pull the drapes back and the patient is really swollen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing that, that makes me feel worse than that. And so knowing that, if they're swollen on the outside, you know they're swollen on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think we need to take a step back and reevaluate some of, of the things we do but by the same token, we're only a link in the chain between anesthesia, the surgeon, the time of operation itself. So I think we're all out there doing the best that we can with what we have. And so that's why I think this is important that we can actually sit and, and discuss things like this. Now, mm-hmm. now, that can be partially counteracted by having a lower pressure, a lower perfusion pressure to the tissues. I don't know how low the, the perfusion pressures go. Uh, to the tissues, but but of course, if you lower the perfusion pressure, then you then you have a problem with blood flow blood flow through the various tissues, including the kidney, being too low and and, and not having enough oxygen delivery. Mm-hmm. So uh, so you can't lower the blood pressure too low. You certainly shouldn't lower it much below what we consider the the, the lower level of auto regulation. Yeah, very good point. So so what you're saying is make sure I understand this correctly you're saying that you can reduce, and I'm assuming it's through, I I guess it's through, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly the mechanism, but if you have a lower oncotic pressure, that if you lower your blood pressure, you will develop less edema? That would be, uh, I would predict that. You would predict that. But you have low, low, But you can only go so low, right? It'd be better to have high blood flow High de- uh, oxygen delivery. <laughs> yes. At least, yeah. What would be, be- it, it, of course, my view is I'd rather have luxurious blood flow versus <laughs> inadequate blood flow of any level. 
Mm -hmm. I would think that that would be better. Kimberly, any questions? Mm -mm, not yet. No. No? Okay, well, we have several questions from online, and one of them actually uh, is, is, is uh, somewhat tied to what you just asked. Uh, one of our physician uh, uh, partners is asking if, the, if there is a capillary opening pressure of the kidney similar to that of the brain. Oh, like yield pressure. As far as I know, it would be at a very low blood, at a very low pressure. If there's been no flow, that would be more probably involved in when you're doing kidney transplants, where you're where you're starting out with, like essentially no flow to the kidneys, and then uh, yes, you would have to exceed what they call yield pressure. Um, but that's at, that's at the pressures that are fairly low, lower. In the, in the lowest range of auto-regulation, and, and once you overcome that yield pressure, you, you would do it. I, I've never actually studied that particular aspect, uh, but I think that, the, that there would be uh, that, that. But if, if there's never been complete cessation of blood flow to the kidneys, I think uh, you, you probably just simply want to maintain that blood pressure high enough so you're, uh, you're within the auto-regulatory range. You could say be at the lowest level of the auto-regulatory range, but it's still good to be within the range, auto-regulatory range. So this person has a follow-up question, and it is uh, that they understood your point about the kidney transplant, but what about type 1 dissections where circulatory arrest is used, profound hypothermia, circulatory arrest, and then you, uh, so you have no blood flow whatsoever, uh, to the kidneys for some period of time and then reestablish it, uh, their question is, what is that, as you said, yield pressure? I don't know the actual number, but it's in the low. It's in the low area, maybe, maybe 15, 15 millimeters. So pretty low, 15, 20 yeah, yeah, in that range. Okay, so that is very low. So, so once you, once that you, answered once that you question. establish blood pressure of 50, 60 or higher. 50 uh, or 60, or are you saying 15? No, 50 or 60. 50 you, or you, 60, you know, so but, you really have to get, so you well, can't just run around at a pressure of 30 as you're reestablishing blood flow. You've got to get that pressure up to get the kidneys perfused. Uh, that would happen whether there's yield pressure, so there's a yield pressure or not, because you're just not going to have that much blood flow when you're down there. Remember, the blood pressure at the, below the autoregulatory range, the blood flow is directly related to the pressure. The lower okay. the pressure, the lower the blood flow. Okay. Uh, and you're not likely to have vasodilatory agents in play under those conditions, so you might not do it. I was going to do the auto regulations. Uh, we could go to that auto regulation. Um, you want to draw? Uh, do you know where it is? I think I have. Um, um, you want to just review all your slides? Hold on, I'm almost there. I'm sorry, right here. So can, if you... Uh, can we go to slides? There you go. So I want to do yellow. You want yellow? Yeah, whatever, yeah. So let me tap well, up. That's uh, fine. No, I, I can make it yellow for this you. This is here. fine. Here, yellow. You can there. have... Uh, yeah, do it? Uh-huh, it's yellow. You can have factors that uh, increase uh, the, the plateau of auto-regulation. So you have this situation occur. Uh, 
something like when you, when you have increased levels of nitric oxide, I think uh, you, you can show that there is a, a, an increase in, in, in blood flow, but you still don't disrupt autoregulation. On the other hand, you can get vasodilation that opens up not only the plateau, but also the lower portion of the curve. You still have autoregulation, but it might be over here. For example, that might, might occur under conditions where you have uh, marked uh, reductions in the activity of the renin-angiotensin system. Uh, so if you have blood flow, if you have vasodilation that uh, increases the blood flow at the lower pressures, that can, that can give you some benefit. Uh, but this is usually not the case. Once you get, but you still have a dependence of the blood flow on the pressure, regardless of the situation at the lower pressures. If you have excessive vasoconstriction, you'll have vasoconstriction at both the lower pressures as well as the plateau autoregulatory levels. Or you can have what occurs maybe in acute, 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 acute failure where you have no autoregulation, where you have uh, a, lot of, a lot of vasoconstriction going on. Or uh, injury that is non-hemodynamically determined, that is such as cell swelling uh, that markedly increases the uh, increases the resistance uh, through through damage to the cells, and and that in, in various types of acute renal failure, ischemic acute renal failure, you can have then no autoregulation at all, or maybe autoregulation at pressures way beyond the physiological range. Okay, I hope that answered that that question. Um, and uh, this is another very good question with uh, with the atrial natriuretic peptide. Um, because the bypass is has the heart completely empty and your stretch receptors are no longer there, what effect does that loss of stimulus have on the kidney during the bypass period when the heart actually you stole they're stealing one of my slides, okay, <laughs> which makes me mad because you're asking a question that I actually address in my slide. So, but I think it's a reasonable question well, to ask now and then address again. Right, there's, there's, there's no direct connection between the right atrium and the circulation, the bypass circulation. So there's no release of atrial natriuretic peptide regardless of the situation. Uh, so for example, uh, but you wouldn't, with low pressure to the atrial stretch receptors, there wouldn't be any release of AMP anyway. Um, but does that make the kidney believe that you are in a shock hypovolemic state. Yes. And then react accordingly and not produce urine. Because one of the things we see very frequently on bypass is no urine output during bypass. But when we come off bypass and the atrium fills back up again, they start diuresing. Mm -hmm. That would be a factor. I don't know what the quantitative role of that factor would be, but that would be a factor. Mm -hmm. um, but but you have to integrate it to all the other mechanisms that may be either causing sodium retention or during recovery allowing for a reestablishment of urine flow and sodium excretion. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay. Um, I, do we have time for one? I have one more question from the audience. I don't want to, and then we'll move into uh, Dr. Tabby's talk. Uh, and it has to do with another point that I have in one of my talks, and that is the loss of pulsatility 
And the, uh, this is a perfusionist that asked that total artificial hearts today are designed to be continuous flow pumps, generally not pulsatile. Um, and patients go on to live with total artificial heart for a long time. Uh, is there a, uh, an adaption that occurs with uh, perfusion of the kidney? Does it have to be pulsatile or how long does it take to adapt to a continuous flow pump? There's been studies from time to time um, on trying to understand the, the particular influence that might occur between, uh, depend, which are dependent on the pulsatility of the pressure. And, and there's, never been a, there's never been a definitive study showing that, that the pulsations or the pulsatility are, are, are absolutely important uh, to maintain uh, uh, normal function. Uh, but, but there are some, some side issues. Uh, for example, the, the fact whether the pulsations are able to keep uh, various, you know, sticky molecules such as the, the, the leukocytes and uh, lymphocytes that may stick to the, uh, to the endothelium uh, more readily in the absence of pulsations. Um, hmm. There may be certain things, but the afferent arterioles to a very large extent damp out a large amount, of, a, a significant amount of, of the pulsations. So they're beyond the afferent arterioles. Uh, flow in, in, in at least in mammalian kidneys it, it, it is relatively steady. Um, there, the pulsations re, are reduced to something like five or ten millimeters of mercury. Um, so it's it's a factor, but I don't think it's a major factor. I think the hemodilution, the low temperature, low pressure, um, and I don't know what all else, uh, and perhaps low colon osmotic pressure would be probably more important factors than the pulsations per se, but um, th there, there are some areas related to the autoregulatory mechanism since to respond primarily to the magnitude of systolic pressure. If, there's a, if, the, if the pulse pressure increases substantially, it looks like the autoregulatory mechanism is responding to the systolic pressure. It's trying to prevent excessive pressure going into the glomerular capillary so it responds to the systolic pressure. So when you have, but that would be under conditions of excessive uh, pulsatility, not mm -hmm. lack of pulsatility. As in so, hypertension or something yeah. like that. So probably without more detailed knowledge of, of, of that, it, it probably would not be considered among the most important factors. Very good. Okay. I, and I think that's it. We're gonna, we can't ask her any more questions here. I'll have some, we'll have some later when we have our general discussions. Are you ready or would everybody like to take a short break? Does anybody need to use the restroom? Um, where, where are we at as far as everybody's feelings here? Yeah. You're good? I'm good. You're good, okay. But no, but, but I think we're gonna move it over to We're gonna tab. move it on, okay. Yeah. She's gonna present, right? Yes. I still, I still, I'm still wanting my nephrology certificate. Which one? The, uh, how do we no, mitigate this one. this one effect? Yes. Okay, very good. And from current. Okay. And you can just pull that right over. Thank you. There you go. Yes, sir. I'll make it full. I'm sorry. From current. Do I have to do that? Mm -hmm. ah, 
I, I don't know what I'm doing, dude. From start? There you go. There. Okay. All right. Yeah, my talk, um, I'll show, I mean, I include so zero study and show in any aspect which um, related to um, the CPB, how it's altered the physiologic um, alterations. But before my talk, um, I have some, <laughs> um, since back then, um, I, I was um, a postdoc, and um, we have a guest speaker, and um, he said, he feel really excited um, for today because um, he need to talk renal you know, physiology in front of the textbook of physiology. And I understand <laughs> right now, yes. I'm, I'm gonna talk something about renal you know, physiology with the textbook of renal you know, physiology beside me. So that's, <laughs> that I'm gonna understand the feeling. All right, um, I would like to um, start with the, I mean, for, for perfusionism, so we, we do so many, many techniques. Um, the first one that, that I want to show and uh, mention about is about the hemodilution. This is a very nice picture, um, you know. Um, I mean, in terms of we, we infill, we have the palming, which is, um, and then finally we, we do the hemodilution. Um, I start with the, the experiment in last. Um, they compare the renal but for you can see right Joe from oh sorry. They compare the, the renal but for if you infill yeah, if you push and hold okay. and then you'll see the red light come on. All right. Yes. There you go. Okay. This study study in rest, they compare if you with I mean without the, the CPB, just hemodilution. If you infill saline or you infill albumin or you infill the whole but and then and then they um, look at the renal but for compare with control. You can see even saline or even the, the albumin, um, all of this is shown to increase the renal but for. But if you infill with blood, it didn't change when you compare with control. What, what does it mean? It means that hemodilution absolutely its effect on renal but for in some way. And next, very nice study. Um, if and you, just to make sure I understood you, you said that hemodilution increased renal blood flow. Yes, from this side. Hemodilution on its own, no CPB, just infuse, taking a patient and giving them a two liter bolus of saline. Yes, that's true from this study, but I will show you so many studies. And then in the protocol too, in, in the same study, if you restore, I mean, you infill by <laughs> even serine or, or albumin, and then you re-infill with blood, it returns renal but for. So that, that, that's it show, it's clearly show hemodilution effects on renal but for, absolutely. And then um, they try to like, understand what is the underlying mechanism, and they block, so now they use the papaverine, they block the, the um, myogenic response, after they broke, yes, it seemed returned to, to control. So in this study, they summarize that the hemodilution play a role in, in determining the reduction of the baseline of renal vascular resistance from this study. And next, I'll show you the study. They compare hemodilution alone and hemodilution in CPB. And they compare with CHAM study. Again, hemodilution, and they look at the the capillary perfusion, 
hemor dilution alone, yet it reduces the, the capillary um, perfusion. But it's more getward, I mean, exacerbate is more getward when hemodilution with CPB. So um, it means that it not only hemodilution affects on the kidney, affects on microcirculatory, but they have another aspect of CPB. What is that? They look at the inflammatory response, and in this study, it's clearly show hemodilution with, um, compared with um, CPB. The CPB increased the TNF alpha, which is um, very, I mean, um, for the inflammatory cytokine, increase interleukin-6, interleukin-10. They look at, at the kidney and, and the lung. Again, I'll show you again. If you compare from sham hemodilution, I would say, yes, it's increasing inflammatory cytokine, but it's more get worse when hemodilution in CPB. What else that they show? Very, very nice study. Um, they look at the neutrophil infiltration, which is show inflammation, right? Again, um, CPB, that's more get worse when compared to hemodilution alone. Um, so they conclude um, in, in the study the decrease in microcirculatory perfusions and the increase in cytokine expression observed in CPB. Um, yeah, it's pay a low also together with hemodilution with more um, make the kidney get burnt in, in a CPB situation. And next, I'll show you for the study. Um, they compare the how to tolerate the anemia in each organ. They compare in the heart, intestine, um, sorry, go back, and kidney. For my understanding, I mean, as a perfusionist for a long, long time, I understanding that in each organ, it shouldn't be tolerant for the anemia in the same way. But th this study showed, no, it's different compared with the heart, intestine, and, and kidney. You see, um, BL is the baseline. H1 is the hemodilution at 25%, I mean um, hematokit 25%, and H2 is a hematokit 15, and H3 at the 10%, hematokit at 10%, and um, H4 is 5 to 10%. And you can then uh, measure the microvascular PO2. For the heart, you can see, um, if you compare to control, yes, hemodilution um, reduce the PO2, but you look at the heart, intestine, and kidney. Kidney is more guesswork, you, you can see from, from this one. The more hemodilution, the more reduce PO2 in kidney when compared to heart. Heart is more tolerant in this way. And they um, look at in the uh, in the detail, and then you, and you can let me show you um, at the kidney. This one is the kidney. Um, let's let's see at the hematokit at thirty percent, when decrease to twenty, decrease to um, ten percent, and you can see it's different from intestine, different from the heart. Um, the tolerance is lower than another organs. So that's they conclude from the, the study that the functional effects of systemic and local regulatory mechanism are different for each of these organs during acute isovolumic hemodilution. Kidney seem more catchword from, from the study. More sensitive. More sensitive, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. and then and, um, they look at the renal, but for um, 
in each time point of hemodilution, again, um, um, again um, the S1, S1 is about 25%, S2 is 15%, S3 10%, and S4 is about 5%. And look at the renal but for compared to baseline. You can see at baseline, the renal but for is about 6 if hemodilution um, about 25%, it um, go to 7.9, and for um, it to um, 15% is um, about 7.5. But if the more hemodilution to 10% or 5%, you can see it decreasing. It respond in different way. That's why you can do hemodilution, but you need to optimal. The hemodilution is it. That's, that's the, from this study. The oxygen supply to renal tissue become critical already. Yes, become critical already in early state of acute hemodilution, as I showed the data. So there is, um, there is a need to determining of optimal degree of hemodilution to minimize the risk of acute renal failure. That, that's a very nice study and show. And um, what is, uh, I want to point out again um, for the um, if the severity of hemodilution, you can see at S3 and S4, it decreasing the oncotic pressure compared to the hemodilution at S1 and S2. S1 is 25, S2 is um, 15%. But if more very severe, it shows decreasing um, the conloid osmotic pressure. Again, um, in my opinion, yes, you can do hemodilution, but you need to optimize the degree of your hemodilution from the study. And this is a very nice study. Um, um, before that, I talk about the, the study in animal, but for this is a, I, for me, I feel like very nice study in this study in human. Um, even small group of, of the study, but the very, very nice and clear the, the data. Um, they measure the renal function effect of cardiopulmonary bypass on renal perfusion, filtration, and oxygenation um, in, in um, patient do bypass. Compared to baseline, this one is baseline, and CPB at 30 minutes, CPB at 60 minutes, and post-CPB. What, what we can see, they, um, CPB at 30 minutes, CPB at 60 minutes, increasing renal perfusion pressure. And what's about the renal vascular resistance? Yes, during the CPB, both increasing renal vascular resistance. And Dr. Nama showed you um, for the basic physiology, when you're increasing renal vascular resistance, that means the renal but for is decreasing. Uh, what's effect? A uh, very uh, very nice um, presentation of you that you show the balance um, between renal but for the flow and oxygen demand of the kidney. You need to balance. But from this, you can see during the CPB, decrease increasing renal vascular resistance very clear from the study, and decreasing renal but for, and also it's consistent with it show decreasing. Oh, um, sorry. It's decreasing renal um, DO2. That's why from the study, they show the tubular damage also from this mm -hmm. study. And I show you again. The question is, DO2 decreasing in renal, and what's about our systemic? 
from this study, you know, for the systemic, we can control it, it not diff, in a, um, it, any time point of CPV or even post-CPV, the DO2 in systemic, which is, uh, it doesn't um, different, didn't mm. change. But for the renal, yeah, it changed in each time point. You can see from this um, CPV at 30 minutes, CPV at 60 minutes, or post-CPV, decreasing renal um, um, DO2. Some, somebody's asking me to ask you a question, interrupt you and ask you a question. Yeah. Um, and they're asking, is ATN, acute tubular necrosis, purely an ischemic uh, cause, an ischemic event? No? Mm -mm. Could no, be toxic. Toxicity. Toxicity. So it could be toxicity yeah. as well. Is ischemic, does ischemia play a, a is that a, a, a cause? as opposed to a primary cause, or is it more toxicity is more of a primary cause? No, ischemia, if it's ischemic or anoxic for a long enough time, it can cause damage so that there is tubular necrosis, but it may be more than it's necessary, more than occurs with just, um, Reduce blood flow. It, it can be re probably anoxic or ischemic conditions that pre prevent adequate oxygenation. Okay, very good. I'm sorry. Forgive me for interrupting you. Yeah, no, no Yeah, and um, again, um, and then they show from the study. So they measure the the neck, which is show the tubular damage. Yes, it's increasing during the CPB at 30 minutes and also after the post CPB. And they conclude that's because the low DO2, renal, um, low renal DO2. System is okay, but no, in, in kidney. And they do the infographic, very, very nice one. Compare at the, they show at the normal physiologies, um, renal but four is about 0.5. Um, and then the PO2 at the, uh, the cortex is about, uh, the oxygen tension is about 50 millimeter mercury. At the medulla is about 10 or 20. Yes, we know this is the principle of physiology. And during the bypass, um, cardiac index didn't change. Yes, because we control from pump, right? Um, Joe, we control um, for this study. The the control at the cardiac index 2.4. I, I the same. I'm the same way 2.4. So that means cardiac index didn't change during the bypass, but the renal DO2 decreasing. The question is why? Why is decreasing? But so from the study because they show the, the vessel constriction. The, the question is why is vessel constriction? They explain because um, they release um, the catecholamine, releasing angiotensin II, um, the hormone that Dr. Nawa showed, that's where it called vessel constriction. And then, and, and compared to renal DO2, normal physiology, and during the bypass, Yes, totally um, decreasing. That's why um, it's impaired uh, the tubular, tubular damage show from, from the neck when they, when they measure. And what's about the after CPV? Um, in my point of view, I mean, um, for a long time ago, I was thinking when you return to normal, when you're winning the CPV, everything should be returned. <laughs> I'm just thinking in the simple way. But from this study, no, it haven't um, returned to normal. You know why? Why? Because everything, you may have separated from the bypass, but the hemodilution still persists. 
Yes, very nice, and I'll show that's when, when I talk, I'll read more and more, but oh, that's, um, I need to change um, for something, for my idea, yes. And you're right, I agree. Oh, good. I'm, I'm really glad. <laughs> I 100% agree. So the injury that we're caused for the two hours of bypass continues when we separate from bypass because we continue to be hemodiluted and, of course, there's still inflammatory mediators screaming around all over the place. Yeah. Please, I'm sorry. Forgive no me. worry. And so um, I read that because I, I really appreciate for the, the conclusion. The major finding was that despite a 33% increase in systemic perfusion folate, yes, increasing perfusion folate because we control the fall, right? But during um, the renal oxygen supply demand is mid-matched and added, like I show from the data, this one are likely caused to renal vessel constriction, which in combination with hemodilution, renal DO2 by 20% during CPB, this impairment the renal oxygenation was accompanied by the release of tubular injury marker and was further um, accessuated after winning from CPB. That's from the conclusion, and, and I, I agree with this. This is the factor of hemodilution um, from the CPB. And then um, also for the, what's about the hypothermia? We do hypothermia. You do the hypothermia. Mild, but Mild. it depends. So if it's a, if it's a, a, a relatively straightforward um, coronary, two or three or four bypasses, maybe even five bypasses, uh, will drift on temperature. Mm -hmm. So we'll use mild hypothermia down to 32, 34 degrees in that range. Uh, if we're doing a valve cabbage, a little mm -hmm. longer procedure, we'll maybe cool to 30, maybe 30, you know, 30, 32. And if we're doing something more complex uh, and expect a much longer bypass time, we'll go down to 28. Generally not much below that unless we're doing a, uh, a circulatory arrest and then we will cool uh, to 18 degrees. And what's about you, Tim? Um, let's say, for example, bentol operation, how um, you control the, the body temperature. You cool to, to for me, 28? Uh, for say, you? Like, yeah, but like, I for mean, example, the, the bentol operation. Oh, for a bentol? Yeah, but maybe um, if Without circulatory arrest? No, without. Without? Oh, no. For a bentol? No, you we maybe would 30. 32, 34. Yeah, that's the question for you. As long um, as we have, team? as long as we have adequate cerebral blood flow no. um, and perfusion in general, that we're not going to be doing circulatory arrest. Uh, as, as you know, as long as we're perfusing via either the anominate or something that or subclavian that we can flow to the body uh, while they do the, they can clamp mm. uh, uh, proximal. Uh, of the anominate takeoff, then we'll just perfuse normally and only use mild hypothermia. Oh, okay, maybe I'm more than you. I, I mean, I'm lower than you. Yeah, we wouldn't just okay. because we're replacing the ascending aorta and the, the aortic, even if we're doing an aortic valve with it, mm -hmm. a valve conduit, as long as we have perfusion, we're not going to cool much. Mm. It's more how long are we going to be here? And for a standard bentol with our surgeons, even with uh, replacing the valve, that's probably going to be a 50 to 60 minute bypass time, mm -hmm. 
So it's not very long. Yeah. Does right. that seem right to you? Mm -hmm. About. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and next I'll show about how hypothermia affects after the physiology function for the kidney. We focus on the kidney. Uh, they compare between 30, uh, I mean normal thermia and hypothermia in 28 and then show the renal but 4 and they measure the renal but 4 and absolutely that's very clear to show that hypothermia affects on renal but 4, decreasing mm. renal but 4 from the hypothermia. Mm. And what's about the renal um, uh, vascular resistance? Yes, hypothermia, hypothermia, increasing renal vascular resistance. Mm. That's why decreasing renal but for very, I mean, I mean it's, it's reasonable. The question is, what is the underlying mechanism? Um, they was thinking about um, the nitric oxide, if nitric oxide um, effect on, on this. And then they, inf they infill the nitric oxide, but didn't change in the, at the hypothermia after infill the nitric oxide. No, it didn't change um, to normal thermia. So they conclude that um, the nitric oxide may be um, not involved. So from the conclusion, coal, yeah, that's it, uh, hypothermia, induce rest in renal vascular resistance result from afferent arterial vasoconstriction by the autoregulatory mechanism setting renal but for MTFR in the proportion to metabolic rate, which cannot be explained by reduced nitric oxide production alone, because when they, uh, again, I show again, because when they infuse the nitric oxide, it didn't change. And next, that's, I really write <laughs> um, this slide. My, also my question, when we do the hypothermia, in every organ in our body, the same temperature are different. That, that's my question also during, I mean, I control the Harlang machine. And when we saw the, from the arterial term, it's the same in the organ, and in each, each organ is the same, value or not. From this study, they show, no, it's not the same. And ah. they, can, they show that regional temperature during CPB, the kidney temperature was almost identical to arterial temperature, but the brain doesn't. The top one is the brain. No, when you decreasing from, they decrease from 40 and decreasing until to like 20, 25, you can see, and they measure at arterial, venous, brain, gut, kidney, muscle, rectal. Kidney seem identical to arterial. It's um, the same as we can see it. I, I feel, oh, okay, <laughs> that's okay, that's, that's okay for me. And, but very important, Yes, we can, um, we can see the kidney um, reduce the temperature the same as the arterial. And what's about the flow? The flow should be reduced. Um, and then they show if you add the high flow, um, I'll go back to this. They measure the flow at carotid flow, um, skeletal muscle flow at the renal artery flow and femoral artery. The four decreasing in renal artery, but not in femoral artery. Why? The question is why. They said that's because the redistribution to the skeletal muscle. It's chip um, the blood from kidney and so the artery organ and chip to, to the skeletal muscle. So, but for during hypothermic cardiopulmonary bypass, it's shunted to skeletal muscle, particularly in the high pump flow. That's true from this study. 
And then, what's about the met metabolism? Um, yeah, when we, um, I mean, at the, at the lower temperature, it decreasing oxygen, oxygen consumption, that, that's, I mean, that is like a principle. But we need to concern, I mean, in my point of like perfusion, it, when you do the rewarming period, at the rewarming period, we still do the, we still on the hemodilution, right, Joe? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Still, yes. Yeah, it, we still um, hemodilution. It continues all the way for a few, several days. <laughs> yes, we, we still hemodilution, but we increase temperature. That means from the study show, we increase oxygen consumption, but we still hemodilution. That's why it's mid-math happened. Yes. That's why it's happened. And then um, they have the question is, or um, what's about, oh, I'll go back a little bit. So from my point, rewarming very important that we need to concern to, I mean, keep the DO2, keep everything because that's, that will, we will return to normal. Um, and then next study they showed, this, this is the clinical trials. The question is, what's about if we, like my hypothermia, they keep the temperature during the operation and until winning at 34, 34 degrees Celsius, and they compare for the hypothermia and like we do hypothermia and then we rewarm to 37. Is it different or not? If you maintain 24 throughout the, the operation until winning compared to, to normal that we did, and what's about happen on, on, the, on the kidney? Actually, they, they, they not show, uh, the data didn't uh, different much, but we, we can see some, some um, important points. Sustain my uh -huh. hypothermia does not improve renal outcome. However, rewarming on CPB is associated with increased renal injury and should be avoided that they show from, from the study. So uh, just to make sure that I'm clear and that the audience is clear, are you recommending not using hypothermia for bypass because, or is that study recommending or, or illustrating that staying normal thermic is better than cooling and rewarming? No, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, I mean, you can do hypothermia or, or you sustain my, my, no, my hypothermia from this study, but you need to concern during rewarming period, the so rewarming what, period. So go, if you could go back to the slide, I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. Sustained my mild hypothermia does not improve renal outcome. However, rewarming on CPB is associated with increased renal injury and should be avoided. So I, I, don't, I don't think I understand what that's saying. They say when you revolve at the revolving period, you need to, like I mentioned, you need to make sure that your DO2 is proper, your okay, everything so this is proper. Is, so if, so you cannot be, uh, you can, you, you cannot be at lower flow while you're rewarming. You need to make sure that, so what this slide is saying is, during rewarming, you have to make sure you are delivering, your DO2 is 
as much as it needs to be, as opposed to suboptimal. Yes, mm -hmm. and okay. not, not only DO2 in terms of flow, in terms of pressure. Right, DO, you, your DO2, your O2 delivery. Yes. Total O2 delivery. Mm -hmm. Yes. Got it, okay. And then um, I show other, the mathematical models. This is a, I mean, like a, they, they use the mathematical um, to, to predict um, something, and they show form the model for calculate at, at the 28 degrees Celsius, the model predict is market decrease 46.1% of arterial flow, which result in 47.4 reduction in synchronous from GFR. I point out that because I, I want to show you that even we calculate like the mathematical model or something, hypothermia, effect on renal but for effect on vascular vasoconstriction. And um, affects sodium, re, uh, sodium reabsorption. Yes, that's from the, the models. And this is just only from hypothermia? From hypothermia. Nothing yes. else? Yes, just the factor from hypothermia. And when compared um, at the renal um, cortex and renal medulla, the renal medulla, as I showed the slide before, the oxygen tension is about just only 10 and 20. Renal medulla is particularly susceptible to hypoxia during rewarming phase of CPB. That's from the, the mathematical model um, prediction. And then um, they have the, the study in sheep and also in, in human. I'll show you from this study. Um, they show the renal oxygenation during the onset of cardiopulmonary bypass. And you can see during the bypass, all around the way, the renal vascular, renal but for decreasing, renal vascular resistance increasing, which is the, the I mean, very similar to the many, many um, studies that I'm showing you, and they confirm again. And then they measure the the urinary um, oxygen tension, which is very close to identical to medulla, medulla um, oxygen tension. And it shows you, for, during the bypass, it decreasing, um, very significant decreasing. That means they conclude that med, um, renal medulla susceptible to hypoxia. Mm -hmm. Even by itself, even by um, normal physiology, because low oxygen tension um, at, at that area. So that we need to concern about this. So um, from the, the conclusion, renal medulla, um, renal medullary hypoxia is an early, even during CPB, it starts to develop even before CPB. So yeah, we need to concern. Yeah, it starts, you know, in fact, that's a, that's a, and I'm going to ask that question. That's a very good question. I have a, we have a, we have several questions for you, so let me let you continue. Yes, and next, I'll show you the effect from positive, um, and non-positive. That's a very question for, I mean, um, we, we discard, we debate, um, in this point for perfusionists for long. Um, before I go to the the positive or non-positive, I'll show you. I also have a question. That's why I I did, I did postdoc and and I showed that you remember. You told me that's very um very difficult experiment, and I say yeah, I'll do that because I want to see it. I'll show you. This is um my um, my postdoc work with with Dr. Nava. Actually, we um. We look at the interactions of two receptors at the, to control the renal afferent arterials, but um, from the video, 
let, let me show you. Okay, I stop. I should stop. Um, we took the kidney out from, I mean, we took the kidney out, we, we, um, we ran the experiment under the microscope. I point this one because that means no, um, um, no control from, from the, the, the nervous system anymore because we took the kidney out, right? So, and um, we look at the gomolulus. This one, um, this is the gomolulus. This one is um, um, the vessel, afferent arterial. And then, I'll show you. And then we measure the diameter. Oh, this, sorry. And then we measure the diameter of afferent arterials. When we, um, we infill, let me, you can see from, you, you see um, this one, right? This, this, this one is we, we infill um, the solution. From what we, I point out is because we infill the solution and we control pressure at 100. It's like a non-pulsatile photo. It's because we, we just for no pulsatile anymore. And we took the kidney out from the body. My question is, the renal autoregulation, it is still work? Because this is non-pulsatile And I'll show you, yes, it's work. You can see it's moving, that's a point out. Maybe difficult to see, but you no, can I see. No, I can see it. Yeah, I it's think moving. You can see it. Yeah, you can it's, see it it's, dilating and constricting. Yeah, it's moving when we increase pressure to 140. So um, I show you this and why to point out this one again. Even non pulsatile yes, I would say, yeah, renal autoregulation is work, but it's work well or not. I don't know, but I confirm it's work. I see from my eye and I, and I show you from mm -hmm. this. Um, so. I'll go back to my next slide. For, like I mentioned, we still debate about pulsatile and non-pulsatile. I, I show a um, very nice study also. Um, they compare in three groups. The group one is um, they use the, the pulsatile and they generate the, like a new equipment to mimic um, pulsatile in, in our body. And group two, they use the, the pulsatile, which is the, from the lower palm and group T is non-pulsatile. And um, this one is just like a, the demographic that they showed. This is a, in the normal before on bypass, the pattern of blood pressure is like this. And in group one, for pulsatile, we uh, try to mimic to pulsatile in our body, even try to mimic, but the pattern is different. And also, the pulsatile with lower palm, the pattern, also different. We cannot mimic the same pulsatile in our body, and absolutely for non-pulsatile, yet yeah, it's not um, didn't show um, the power anymore. And when they, they look at the um, the power pressure, and you can see just group one that they try to mimic um, our body, that's power pressure um, seem to like a um, baseline. But for group two, if you do pulsatile with lower palm, and group three non-pulsatile. That the same. Um, I mean, it different from it different from the baseline. So they conclude that only group one that's nearly equal value for power pressure. Mm -hmm. And then they look at the mean arterial pressure, peripheral vascular resistance, and hemoglobin. Even group one that they show is quite mimic for our um, our body. But when they look at mean arterial pressure, peripheral vascular resistance, hemoglobin, group one, group two, and group three, 
uh, it did, um, I mean, it's not um, significant um, in the data. They are the same. Um, and they, they conclude that no significant difference were found in cost of mean arterial pressure, peripheral vascular resistance, and hemoglobin. And what they see the difference, they, see, they, uh, they, they um, saw the free um, hemoglobin increasing. Mm -hmm. Not at all surprised. Yeah, in pulsatile. Mm -hmm. so, I'm not at all surprised uh, by that. Yeah, and that they, um, um, we need to like a concern in this point also. Well, this is what I was talking about earlier with Dr. Navarre and yourself and, and Kimberly, that a, an arterial cannula is everything okay? An arterial cannula is about seven, uh, seven uh, 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 millimeters. So it's a, 24, a 21 French is about seven millimeters. And an aorta coming out of the ascending aorta is three and a half, three, three mm -hmm. and a half uh, centimeters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to try and generate a pulse through this small, non-distensible cannula jetting mm. is going to create a lot of shear forces and damage the your risk to benefit ratio i don't see any benefit i see very high risk mm -hmm. i don't believe in trying to pulse with artificial circulation unless you want to separate the aorta and attach a big giant graft to it like you would with the total artificial heart mm -hmm. if that's what you wanted to do but i, I don't think it makes sense yeah. And then when they compare in um, group one, group two, and group three, and they look at the um, renal but for, they showed in pulsatile decreasing renal but for, very quite surprised for me. I, I mean, it shouldn't be increased, but that yeah. the data show. Yeah, data shows the opposite. That trying to, but yeah. is that because of the, the non-physiologic pulsatility yeah. or because mm -hmm. it's pulsatile that that doesn't make sense to me right so yeah i hear what you're saying that's counterintuitive but i think the non-physiologic nature of what they're trying to accomplish is the reason why you may have seen that yeah and in the pulsatile group you see group one and group two which is a pulsatile group it increasing the capillary leak and also free plasma hemoglobin in pulsatile from, from this study that they show but um but from another study, like I mentioned, Pulsatai and non-Pulsatai is still on debate. They show some, some benefit from, from Pulsatai also. For example, they show um, the increasing of the, I mean, renal but for to outer, even outer or, or inner cortex and medulla in, in Pulsatai 4. This is another study that they show the regional renal but for was significantly higher in both outer and middle cortical of mm. pulsatile CPB compared with the non-pulsatile CPB. This is another study. So is, this one is supporting it, is supporting pulsatility. Th this one is supporting pulsatility, yes. Mm. And another um, study that show, um, they show is it pulsatile improve renal function or not? That, that's the question. But they point to the, the plasma film um, plasma free hemoglobin because um, one cause of acute kidney injury, right? Plasma hemoglobin. And this, the data show in pulsatile group increasing free plasma hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. 
um, and didn't protect the kidney anymore in, in Palestine group from, from the study. That they show this increased level of hemolysis goes some way to explain why we did not see the beneficial impact of Palestine CPV4 on renal function or intraoperative lactate level from, mm -hmm. from this study. And um, right, I mentioned, but some studies show the benefit again. Um, for example, like the, this study they show in Palestine group um, is increasing um, the, the plasma um, creating in land, which is um, like a help to protect the, the kidney also. But which is a study bad, I mean, in terms of um, they show, and also they, they measure the, the uh, NGAL, which is um, show the uh, tubular damage. And from the study, they conclude that short-term pulsatile in elderly patients show higher safety for renal physiology than non-pulsatile, resulting in better maintenance of GFR and low renal tissue injury. That, that's the result from the study. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I, I mean, um, for me, mostly I do non-pulsatile for, um, if you ask me why, um, I. I concern about the hemolysis. I concern about the free plasma hemoglobin because um, we do we use the roller pump, but but you use the centrifugal pump. Mm -hmm. But I, I asked you before, do you use pulsatile or non-pulsatile? And you you answer your answer is um, non-pulsatile. Actually, for the centrifugal pump, it should be better than roller pump in aspect of hemolysis. You may don't think about the hemolysis. I don't, but, I don't think it why. is. And I think the reason for that's a very good question, but I don't I think the reason for that again is a is our shear forces. Mm. You're still, you know, we if you monitor the arterial line pressure in the circuit, um, you'll see it vacillate with the centrifugal pump up to three hundred and ten all the way back down to about eighty and then shoot right back up to three ten and do that. Uh, repeatedly, and I can only imagine that coming out of that seven millimeter cannula mm -hmm. that is very uh, uh, damaging that kind of velocity uh, to the red blood cells. That's mm -hmm. what I believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a question for Jim when, when he um, went to, uh, to Thailand, and I asked this question, Jim, you, you, you remember that? Um, do you pulse or non pulse Your answer is. I use non-pulsatile because pulsatile when it's run is um, run and stop, run and stop, and I worry is this work or not. That that he'd answer, but I, I feel yeah. are you kidding me? But yeah, that's the question again. Do you use pulsatile or non-pulsatile, and why? Non-pulsatile uh, non only because, like I just explained before, when I was in Thailand, after doing this so so long you you're so focused on watching that roller pump go round and round and round and so when it stops you <laughs> it, it it freaks you out a little bit and so then it starts and stops and starts and stops it would it, it would take a little bit of getting used to but th that's why we don't do it yeah you use non-pulsatile that you answer um, in thailand and yes again you answer non-pulsatile yeah i do yeah. i do and next, um, I show how DO2 chain and renal oxygenation chain during the, the bypass. Um, this is the, the study, in, in animal study, but very nice study. They study from um, like a baseline and at the conscious condition and then the anatitide and then bypass. And you can see at the bypass, 
the mean arterial pressure decreasing, yes, we decrease mean arterial pressure is about 50 to 70 millimeter mercury. And then show decreasing renal blood flow. You see, when to compare to conscious and under anesthetized, but then bypass renal blood flow decreasing. And um, again, um, medulla um, oxygen tension, yes, decreasing at the bypass. That's why they point out to the medullary hypoxia happen during the bypass. We need to concern too much about this point. And what, what they show the, the, in, in this nice study, and also at the bypass, at the last time point, the renal DO2 decreasing, re renal oxygen consumption increasing. That's why they show again is mid mat happen from the um, renal oxygen extraction is increasing at the bypass period. So they conclude from, from the study, rebound but for and renal DO2 to be markedly reduced during CPB, even though the systemic oxygen extraction was similar to that in, 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 the, in the ship. And um, we need to, I mean, show the, the very nice critical study from Dr. Lanucci that um, that's we talk about so many, many times for the, for the perfusionist, for the co-directed perfusion to reduce acute kidney injury. Um, it's a randomized trial. Um, he he compare. I mean, he look at the the two group, the control group and the co-directed perfusion group. At the co-directed perfusion group, they keep the the DO2 more than 280 to 80 compared to to the control group. And they, the from the data they show in um, co-directed perfusion group, if you keep DO2 more than 280 the AKI instead one led, they use um, the AK, the AKIN cast one um, to classify the AKI state one um, significantly reduce um, happen when compared to, to the control group. So um, they um, conclude that a co-directed perfusion study aimed to preserve oxygen delivery during CPB is effect to reduce um, the, the AKI happen. Um, and from this, um, I show again, so um, this is the recent study. From the study from Dr. Lanushi, um, he point out to more than 280, but um, recent study, um, they point out to maybe T, um, T, I mean, TOT, 300 and 3 for the DO2, maybe um, like a better than 280. That's the recent study um, show about the, the DO2. Um, and also from, from this study, they conclude that it, um, CPB time lack the level and DO2 were significantly associated with um, the cardiac, um, I mean for the, um, for the AKI after CPB. And like I mentioned, a decline of DO2 greater than um, TOT was um, correlated with post-operative AKI, which is a little bit higher than 280 um, study from Dr. Lanushi. And the question um, again is um, how we can protect, um, I mean um, in the afternoon section we, we will talk this again, but, but I show this. Um, they compare if we fold at the cardiac and index at 2.4, 2.7 and 3, and, and they show compared to 2.4, I mean compared to um, the folate at 2.4 cardiac index, at 2.7 and 3, it increasing um, oxygen delivery to the kidney, which is the, um, 
And from this study, um, right now, they do the clinical trial to compare the, the two, but for between 2.4 um, and compared to 2.9, with low 4 and the high 4 rate. This is effect on, on kidney function. It shouldn't be effect on kidney function in the same way with um, the hypothesis is um, increasing um, high folate shouldn't be better for, for preserve the, the kidney function. And next, um, I show you for the inflammatory response to the CPB um, for the kidney. They, um, how I can say, they, they analyze the, the gene expression, the gene expression for the inflammatory response. After the CPB, the study in animal study, and then after um, the CPB, they analyze for the for the mRNA, the, the, the gene um, response, and they show interleukin six and so many many um, inflammatory cytokine gene um, significantly increasing after the CPB. So that's confirmed again. Inflammatory response yes happen for the for the CPB, and when look at the plasma concentration of interleukin six. From the animal study, you can see compared to CHAM at the CPB group, the interleukin 6 increasing more than um, 4,404, which is. Um, well, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sure. I mean, I confirm again, yes, inflammatory response is happening during the CPB. Um, and also from this study, it, and they try to, what is the underlying mechanism? Um, and they show the expression of cytokine and adhesion molecule, um, so many things is um, accumulate and increasing during the CPB from, from the gene expression. And for another study, they look at the, I mean, they look at um, in different organ from the heart, from the lung, from, for the liver, for the kidney. And um, from the study, they show neutrophil and pellet accumulate in the heart, lung, and kidney after cardiopulmonary bypass. And also for the pellet and um, neutrophil were entrapped in the heart, lung, and kidney of, of the bypass. That's indicating that cell accumulation may contribute to the develop of organ dysfunction. That's also happened also. And for the clinical trial, um, the, the measure, um, I mean, um, more than a thousand um, from adult cardiac surgery, and then the measure after after the surgery, a look at the interleukin four and interleukin thirteen, and also for interferon gamma, and from the study they can um, they show that both interferon gamma and interleukin four and interleukin sixteen cytokine increase immediately after cardiac surgery and associated with high risk of AKI, even one-year mortality. That's from just um, the, the study from 2019, very recently in, in, in patients. And when look at in the detail, and they can show in a group of happened AKI, the inflammatory response increasing in every time point that, that they measure from the study. And next, I'll talk to about um, the pharmacologic death effect um, that we use um, during the CPB. Um, you point out for, I mean, you point out for, for the phenylephrine. Um, We're very generous with the use of phenylephrine. Mm -hmm. Yes. We, we love phenylephrine. You love phenylephrine. We love it. 
very, I mean, after we give increasing um, miniature pressure, that's mm. very nice. But the question is, you you may have the good number, I mean, increasing um, mean arterial pressure, and what's about the micro microcirculation? Yes, it may be poor. Yes. But what's, you know, and, and this is such a, uh, a common debate, what's my job? My job is to get this patient out of this operating room with this operation and have them wake up so they need a perfusion pressure. And that's the problem. I have to perfuse the brain and I have to worry about the pressure in the brain. Mm -hmm. I have to worry about the heart functioning after the cross clamp comes off or before the cross clamp goes on, either one. But what effect am I having on the kidney and what do I do? What drug do I use mm -hmm. that is less damaging to my renal blood flow but still accomplishes the job I need to do, which is provide the patient with blood flow and a blood pressure. You do a good job, I Does know. Dopamine work? <laughs> Does sorry? dopamine work? Um, I mean, in higher doses, yes, but we, it, it's, it's not in our common um, armamentarium. So we would generally use as boluses, uh, phenylephrine, norepinephrine, uh, or vasopressin, depending on the uh, whether the patient is refractory to the neo, the phenylephrine, or whether they're, uh, they respond well to that, or maybe norepinephrine if that's what they need. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, there's so many things that happen. Mm -hmm. For example, and I'm so glad you brought some of these things up. It's very impressive uh, work, but, you know, you give cardioplegia and you have a cross clamp on the aorta and the cardioplegia is between the aortic cross clamp and the aortic valve. And you want that cardioplegia to go down the coronaries and sometimes of course you have coronary obstructions. So you make sure that pressure is very high. Well, the baroreceptors see that and you have suddenly a systemic drop in blood pressure which is significant and profound all the way down to 30. Mm. And that makes us very excited because we don't like the blood pressure yeah, to be 30. Yeah. So we treat that with something to raise the blood pressure back up again. Um, if we just waited, maybe it would solve itself. But I've sat there for two, three, four, five minutes and it's not coming back up. I have to do something. Mm. Yeah. Please, yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you can. Um, yeah, and I, I show um, the effect of phenylephrine um, from, from this study. Uh, they, <coughs> they take an image. Um, actually, they measure at the sublingual microcirculation, but refer to, to the microcirculation. And you can see at the, at the picture B, yes, it yes. shows decreasing the, the microcirculation when you give the phenylephrine. And um, they conclude that an increased perfusion pressure, yes, we increase perfusion pressure produced by phenylephrine in constant of CPB4 may decrease microcirculatory but for mm -hmm. in the sublingual um, mucosal um, microcirculation due to the microvascular but for shunting. That's from the study. And um, this, I'll show you um, the, um, this um, another the study, very nice study. They compare if you increase pump 4 and you give phenylephrine, which one is better for for um, for the microcirculation? And I want to know also when, when, when I look at it. And you can see um, the study that they, they, they decide um, decreased blood pressure to to 65, 
and then they increase pump for and or give phenylephrine and then they compare. And you can see um, they look at the vascular resistance as um, systemic, they measure as systemic um, at the gastric, pancreatic, renal, cerebral, and femoral. And they compare if you increase pump for or phenylephrine. At the systemic vascular resistance, increasing compared to if you give phenylephrine, the systemic vascular resistance increasing and it's different from, it's higher than increased pump for from the phenylephrine. And look at the, look at the kidney. For the kidney, yes, again, vascular resistance higher than increased pump for. So I mean, it's a question for perfusionist. If you, during the role, but for, and I know, I'm sorry, during the role mean arterial pressure, do we increase for or we need to, to give a drugs? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a question. Uh, and it's a very fair question, but there is a limit to how much yeah. we can flow. Right. So even with a uh, patient who is septic that has a massive cardiac output, they mm -hmm. can have a very low blood pressure that's not unsustainable for life that you have to treat yeah. and get the uh, perfusion pressure back up. Mm -hmm. um, but you sacrifice generally one organ system for another organ system mm -hmm. uh, to, for the patient's survival. They can live with dialysis, but they can't live brain dead. Yeah. And that's where you have the dilemmas. Mm -hmm that we have. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate your comment. Very nice, yeah, I, I do agree with that. And, um, and again, when um, you look at, um, compare at the increased pump for and phenylephrine, um, focus on the, the renal vascular resistance, as I show you, the renal vascular resistance increasing for phenylephrine compared to you increase pump for. So the, they conclude that renal cortical but for correlated directly with perfusion pressure and regulated by pump four, but not by infusion of phenylephrine. The use of vasoconstrictor during normotomic CPB did not improve renal perfusion abnormality at low pump four rate, despite restoration of perfusion pressure. That's what from this study. And um, I would like to end up um, my talk with um, my thesis. Um, actually, this is my PhD thesis. Um, last time I came here, I, I joined um, your program and I talked, um, I studied physiology because during my perfusionism, I have so many questions. And I decided to experiment for the PhD, I mean, for master and PhD, um, I do the cardiac ischemia reperfusion injury. And then I look at the renal nerve response after ischemia reperfusion injury. And um, one of, um, I mean, one of data from, from my study. Um, I will show you that after ischemia reperfusion injury, and then I measure, they like measure of renal nerves. We put the electrode on the renal nerves, and we um, measure the power, step, um, power spectrum density. Actually, um, in each herd, in the response in each herd, it, it refers to different response. Let me show you. If um, if respond um, at the hertz about 0.5 to 1.5, that's mean um, Lenin release. If respond at 1 to um, 2.5, is mean sodium accretion, and more than that, is mean um, its impact on renal but four. And from my study, I found that um, after ischemia reperfusion injury, in we study in animal in group that supplement with 
glucose with a high glucose. Mm -hmm. It this one happened. It's respond by increased renin release after that. So that means after ischemia reperfusion injury happened, it's I mentioned after that two days, it still have high learning release, which is um, turned to kivet. And I mean, finally, we have the high angiotensin too, which still caught vasoconstriction, I mean, in systemic or in, in, in renal, but for also. Turn back to, to your answer before. Yes, after CPV, it still have something happen. The injury is ongoing. It's ongoing. It's the phenomenon that we're dealing with. Yeah, that's that's something from, from my PhD research that's a one to two. And um, I want to summarize my talk with, I think that's, hey, that's, that's very Hey, that's one nice. of my slides. Did, you, did I steal it from you or you stole it from oh, me? I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I steal it. <laughs> did you steal that one from me? I, I just, I'm sorry. I sent them my slides. Not at all. That looks oh very familiar. God. No, not at all. <laughs> all right, I, I would like to, Actually, we, we talked to many aspects of CPB involved in, in, um, in um, physiologic alteration. Um, yes, hemolysis happened, as, as I mentioned, and plasma hemoglobin was, um, I mean, is, um, promote the acute kidney injury, of course, and stimulates sympathetic nerve activity. As I show you for my, my research, yes, I, I found that after ischemia reperfusion injury, it stimulates sympathetic nerve activity. And I measure from the renal nerve um, directly, yes, it's sure. Also the hypoperfusion we need to avoid. And so like inflammation and so many things that that's all my talk um, <laughs> um, throughout the, the hour. And this is the last slide from morning section. <laughs> Yesterday, um, Joe picked up Dr. Nawa and I um, at the airport. It's a big airport, it's in Houston Airport. And I haven't shared with you. Um, I get lost a little. <laughs> I get lost for, for some way. And Dr. Nawa said, um, we walk so long. Are you sure that we collect? I said, oh, there are so um, civil terminal, Dr. Nawa. But believe in me. Um, I have the Google map in my hand. I know the direction, <laughs> and both of them, the link. Finally, we we will find job. Actually, um, it is in my hand. Um, so that's my point. Um, we know so many alteration, many many things happen for physiology during the CPB, but it is in our uh, our hand. It is in perfectionist hand, and that is my talk in the morning. Thank that's you. That's very good. Excellent. <laughs> um, a, a question for you. That was excellent. Thank you. I have a question for you, and that is, is Bangkok Airport bigger? It's bigger than Houston Airport. Um, they are in the same building, you know, but oh, okay. it's not separate in many terminal. What's up, Jim? Can share this. What's about the airport mm -hmm. in Bangkok, Jim? Is we are in the same. Yeah, Bangkok. Yeah. Bangkok Airport is very big. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. It is very big. Um, it's a major international airport. Mm -hmm. it, would you say it was, so it doesn't have as much land mass as the terminals of IAH Intercontinental in Houston, or it, it, because it's more in one structure, you have different levels, because we just have it spread out. It's, uh, well, it's Texas, everything's spread out in Texas. It's true. Um, it's but, true. Uh, 
I I don't know. I would have to Google it. <laughs> okay, very good. Is, well, that's not part of our thing today. So, Jim, you want to uh, you want to start off with uh, any sure. questions you may have. I have the audience questions here, and I have my own questions as well. Maybe Dr. Devar, okay. since this is your student, do you want to no, you want a griller no, or do no you want? It's okay, Jim. Go ahead. Okay, Tabby. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your kind words. Oh, so um, uh, a couple of things. Um, I will tell you with the delivery of oxygen, I have changed my technique because I've started using apps. And I think what we have to think about now is we have to calculate our flows to deliver a certain amount of oxygen. And using the apps that are available, we can calculate our flows, Our P, uh, we can calculate our PO2, plug in our PO2s and our saturations in our hemoglobins and it will tell us what we need to flow. I think sometimes we need to look away from that 2.4 index and actually look exactly how much oxygen we are delivering. That's my first point. Um, my second point is, Joe, your comment with the blood pressure going down upon the delivery of cardioplegia. Potassium is a potent vasodilator, number one. When we turn that cardioplegia pump on, we've also created a, a little bit of a shunt. And so that's taken away from the systemic blood flow. And also what I try to do is I try never, ever, ever to give neosinephrine as I'm delivering the cardioplegia. Because when I do that, it just becomes part of the cardioplegia and just constricts the coronary arteries. Mm -hmm. Good points, um, good points. What is cardioplegia? And also, and I think one of the most important things is neosinephrine makes the surgeon happy when they look up at the monitor and they see a blood pressure that they're happy with. Um, but getting back to you, Tabby, um, he hearing your words makes us think and review everything that we do behind the pump every day. And so it's a good, uh, it's a good exercise in, in awakening to uh, really kind of press the reset button and focus on uh, on what we do every day. Thank you. Hi, thank you, Jim. Thank you for joining. I, I told you, you surprised me. I'm so very honored to have you here. You know, but he's like a and he's a trooper. He's, he's sticking with us because we're going to take a break for lunch here. Uh, and I hope you'll come back for our last two. I think we have a couple of more lectures to do to make sure that we get all of the points that we need to get for today. And of course, you're getting if you need the points, we're giving you the points for today, of course, uh, uh, for your generous time. Um, it's the least we can do. Um, but uh, uh, but with that said, those are, I think your points are well taken. I don't give the neo as I'm giving the cardioplegia either. I do agree with you on that. Um, and, you know, as far as the potassium is concerned, um, we do this case with uh, where we use uh, systemic hyperkalemia and we'll give the patient up to 240 milliequivalents of potassium, sometimes as high as 300 milliequivalents of potassium as a single dose and if mm -hmm. you give that too fast you have to be very careful how you do it i see the opposite effect we see massive very significant hypertension so i wow. do it in okay. probably 20 20 to 40 milliequivalent aliquots 
and try to wait and try to drive that potassium up. But that's a different lecture. Uh, but I know that you can, I think you can have both phenomenon occurred. Certainly I've seen, you've seen, I think that hypertension uh, as well on those hyperkalemia cases that we do. Um, I did want to get to uh, uh, a couple of questions about the, and I agree with you 100%, by the way, Jim, on the DO2. The problem with that is, and, and I'm not asking these questions, I apologize. The problem with that is, is that you only have so much blood flow. So your drainage is only so much. Your cannula size sizes are only so much. You can only add so much vacuum assist for your return. Um, and there's only so much that uh, the heart will drain and they need the heart to be empty. So it's flow and i agree with you 100 percent. but it's and you when you say do2 you cannot separate the arterial oxygen content from that equation and i just think we allow our patients to be too anemic i think we have come to accept a 21 uh hematocrit or a 7 hemoglobin as acceptable but if that's too low and you can't flow high enough to achieve the DO2, that you only have two, you have two choices. Hemoconcentrate if you can to raise the hemoglobin or transfuse. But transfusions, and if you, you know, we do our lectures on transfusions with some very smart people, they will tell you, oh my God, if you give blood, you're going to, you know, you're just about going to execute the patient. So we, we, we're really stuck in a paradigm of, this is a very provocative session today. There are, I don't think we really are going to solve these issues, but I think we really need to look into it because we have not changed a lot in our field for many years now. And I, I think we need to come up with some techniques that take into consideration all of the factors, including how we're affecting the kidney uh, and uh, protecting both the brain and the kidney, which seem to be, in my opinion, the two most, uh, uh, the two most uh, susceptible organs to problems, uh, especially in the post-operative period. My thoughts, anyway. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, Everything we do is bad. It's just how bad we're willing to accept. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Okay, uh, question um, uh, from our audience. What is the mechanism of increased renal blood flow from the hemodilution? And they're, question, they're asking, is it, is it intended because the kidney sees the increased water volume and wants to concentrate, and that's why the renal blood flow increases. What's the mechanism by hemodilution increasing renal blood flow? From the study, right? But um, I mean, uh, yeah, I showed the study. In my opinion, I, I was thinking the viscosity, because hemodilution decreased viscosity, which is a re decrease the vascular tone. Okay, so that it's- That should be increased renal blood flow. So you have de decreased resistance due to decreased viscosity. Viscosity, okay, yeah, that's enough. in my opinion. Maybe Dr. Nawa add for something. Yes, uh, I think it's important to point out that the, the, the hemodilution uh, will um, 
reduce the degree of, of scavenging that occurred by the red blood cells to the nitric oxide that is released by the endothelial cells. So you'll actually have an increased nitric oxide levels in the kidney, which will give a, give a vasodilating effect in addition to the effect caused by the decrease of viscosity. Okay. Hemodilution will also decrease your vasoconstrictor factors, such as uh, angiotensin II circulating in the blood. So uh, just simple overall extracellular fluid volume expansion caused by hemodilution, um, well, hemodilution caused by extracellular fluid volume expansion really has a whole lot, a whole host of um, uh, alterations that occur. That's why if you want to know, if you want to separate the effects of a blood volume expansion per se, you do it with a isoncotic, isohemic uh, perfusate by putting in line, similar to what you do, but in line, uh, a, a, a reservoir that equilibrates with the animal's uh, blood, and then you simply reduce the, the volume in the reservoir and you create a pure blood volume expansion. That, that will uh, lead to uh, a certain amount of hemodilution that seems to be caused primarily by the release of atrionitrogenic peptide. Mm -hmm. So there are multiple factors that are involved in, um, you're, you're going to also increase, uh, well, in, in, in CPD, you don't have to worry about the release of nitric oxide, but uh, in, uh, in, intact, in intact conditions, uh, you would also have a, a re re release of atrionitrogenic peptide. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it's multiple effects. So the other question somebody asks is they want a clarification during, so because they, they added that they've always believed the opposite and they want to make sure they understood you. Hypothermia increases perfusion to the skin? Or is that what you had said or did we misunderstand you? Well, hypothermia. Um, hypo, yes, yes. hypothermia. No, um, from the side view, right? But um, I would say, hypo, during hypothermia, this told uh, redistribution to because they measure as femoral blood flow. The femoral blood flow does mean to skeletal muscle. Mm -hmm. um, I would say yes. From the from the study that show redistribution to increased um, femoral blood flow. That's mean increased skeletal muscle. But that's from the study that they showed that the south. Yeah. It, okay, so skeletal muscle. So you have a redistribution of blood flow to skeletal muscle during hypothermia. Yes, yes. from the study that I yeah, showed. From that study. Yes. And whereas I would have thought the exact opposite would be the case. You say that again, I'm sorry. I would think the opposite would be the case. You, you think it's opposite? I would think that, but I, was, but I would be wrong. Because it actually increased. Would you, would you not think that? I would think the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, but it it doesn't. If you have your if you have your normal uh, reflexes intact, you you will cause peripheral vasoconstriction. That is vasoconstriction to the skin blood vessels. They got to go somewhere. Okay. So it doesn't increase it to the organs. It increases it to I skeletal guess, muscle. Yeah, I, I think so because that would be. Um, one of the reservoirs that you could uh, increase blood flow uh, without the kidneys will auto-regulate, the brain will auto-regulate, uh, mm -hmm. so you, but I think it's because you're redistributing to a central 
a central location. Central, it just includes yeah. that in it. Yeah. So that doesn't really get sacrificed. Only the skin, only the integument is going to get is going to get shut off. Right, as it's a means of preserving uh, heat. Heat, yeah. Okay. And um, a question which I thought made sense, are we accepting too low a hematocrit on bypass? We accept a low hematocrit. Do we accept, are we accepting a hematocrit too low for renal protection? Um, I, I go back to, I mean, I appreciate your, your, your answer before I answer this question, because we have so many organs that we need to concern about. For the kidney, we need to keep the optimal hemo, hematocrit, which is, should be high for many studies. So because right now, I mean, um, that we do right now for the CPB, decreasing DO2 at the renal, that means we should to keep more hematocrit. But if we keep more hematocrit, that means our hemodilution is not proper, right? It's not, it's not the same that, that we did. But I get very confused about the benefits of hemodilution. I think it became convenient, but we don't walk around with a hemoglobin of seven. We walk around with a hemoglobin of 13, 14. Mm -hmm. Why does it have to be hemodiluted other than convenience and not wanting to transfuse patients mm -hmm. out of necessity, in other words? So is hemodilution, though most people get over it, get through it, um, some don't. I'll say that again. Despite despite, yes. despite the despite our best efforts, seven is low. Seven is really but low. That's very yeah. common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, the last question from someone was, uh, since you were talking about the renal injury starts prior to the going on bypass, mm -hmm. um, they asked if they you think RAP technique uh, helps to exacerbate uh, renal injury prior to going on cardiopulmonary bypass? Um, actually, on my, I have never do RAP, but um, for the question... That's because you're a good perfusionist. Oh, I'm good. <laughs> All good perfusionists do not do RAP. Uh, Jim, you agree with me? Do you, you agree? smile. Jim, you agree? I, I RAP. Uh, I'm a exactly. rapper. Exactly. What's RAP? What? Uh, retrograde autologous priming. It's a technique. What they do is they put the cannulas in, and then you drain the volume from the patient to displace the volume, the crystalloid that is in the perfusion circuit to minimize the hemodilutional impact of going on bypass. However, those that argue that's beneficial uh, have their reasons, um, but I believe that in order to make that work, um, you have to, uh, let me just say that this is inappropriate. Um, I'm sorry. You have to add uh, pressors because you're creating a hypovolemia um, and generate a blood pressure, of course, and then you go on bypass. And if the patient is already hypovolemic, if they're euvolemic or maybe a little hypervolemic already, it Certainly, you don't have to add the volume back, but if they have any hypovolemia at all, you're going to end up giving that volume right back to the patient over time. Mm. Uh, I am more of a believer in minimizing the size of the circuit going on bypass and hemoconcentrating whatever additional priming volume you have. 
So I think that the, the instability that occurs during RAP is more harmful than beneficial than the hemodilution impact of going on bypass and removing that excess volume as soon as you can. And I think it's just a difference in philosophies. Mm. What say you? For the left, um, you mean how left affect the, the kidney, right? Yes, the, the because question. you had said in your, yeah. in your lecture, there was a slide mm -hmm. that indicated that the renal injury associated with cardiac surgery occurs in the pre-pump phase during anesthesia, sternotomy, mm -hmm. all the things getting prepared to go on bypass. And I'm wondering, or this person actually was wondering whether you think RAP exacerbates that, uh, that, uh, that injury. Right, I mean, I never do RAP, but um, my, my answer is, if you can control the pressure, because the more effect is hypotension, if you mm -hmm. can control the, 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 the blood pressure, it shouldn't be okay. Um, Even if you have to administer phenylephrine in order to do that. That's I, I'm going to talk about, but you need to concern, you, con, you control the blood pressure. Um, I mean, it's not just only from the vasopressor, but you control in the proper way. That shouldn't be okay for, for mm -hmm. your kidney. But mm -hmm. if not, that yes, I would say it's, it will have effect if hypertension happened before you're on CPB. Mm -hmm. that, but you don't wrap. I, but the why I don't do that, that's because our patient is too small. You mm -hmm. know, our, the body weight, I mean, um, we are, so when we do lab, very, very difficult to control um, the blood pressure. Mm, so that's true. That's true. That's why I ne never do that. But you ask the guy do that. So Jim, you do wrap. Okay. <laughs> so you heard my reasons for not doing it, please. I, <laughs> this, this is what I think. I think I, I, that we're dealt. Say that again. And so it, say, say that one more time. You have to play the hand that you're dealt. Yes. So you have to tailor your technique to the, I, uh, as an example, I've been, I've seen a number of cases in Thailand, everyone's BSA is 1.3, 1.4. Everyone is yeah. small. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Where here in the Midwest, everyone is big. And so we have a little bit of play, a little bit of leeway. Someone comes into our operating room at a crit of 45, um, Maybe I want, uh, I don't want to wrap, but if someone's borderline where, you know what, I can get away with taking off maybe three, 400 cc's of crystalloid that the patient's not going to get, maybe that's beneficial. So every, there's a surprise in every package. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and you know so, I have to ask provocative questions. So, uh, oh yeah. because, you know, and disagree, even if I do agree, because it's just my job to disagree, <laughs> but I'm just really, it's true, but I'm just so glad Tabby does not. That's all I want. That's, I'm going to conclude this before we go to lunch. Um, I couldn't get to all of the questions. I hope everyone forgives me. We'll try to do that later. Jim, I don't know if you can rejoin us. It'd be great if you could. We're going to take probably a 30 minute break. So I will start my lecture with a disclaimer. Uh, if you will. I'm not, as I said earlier, an acad academician. 
Um, but my expertise comes from my experience, and I have 43 years of practicing as a perfusionist, much like you, Jim. You may not have 43 years. You're a little younger than I am, but you have a lot of years. Collectively, you and I have a, an entire century's worth of, of experience here, right? Uh, we're pretty Just close to it. Yeah, pretty yeah. close to it. So, you know, and I tend to be, um, although I respect and I value tremendously um, scientific evidence-based medicine, I tend to lean towards the more pragmatic approach. I don't need a study to tell me that the patient is in renal failure. I don't need a study to tell me that the patient is blue because I can see it with my own eyes, right? And that's sort of how I tend to practice and operate is from, I know this happens. I'm not exactly sure why it happens, but I know it happens. And I know you that get if a I feel do, for it. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry? You get a feel for it. A absolutely. I think that's my, I mean, I think that mm -hmm. is my strength. My strength is clinical capability. That's really where my strength comes in. And seeing a, a patient presentation and being able to sort of distill down what's wrong here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we live in cardiac surgery. Cardiac surgery tends to be reactive. We tend to do something. Um, and we sort of, I think, scoff a little bit and laugh at a little bit at the really smart people, nothing personal, who sit and, you know, contemplate, hand-wringing <laughs> contemplation. In cardiac surgery, you just don't have that. Everything is very dynamic and happening very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you just have to make very quick decisions yes. uh, about what's going on. So I tend to be somewhat pragmatic, as I said. So my, my talk is, what is AKI and what is ARF? So you have acute kidney injury and acute renal failure. So the classic definition, if you will, what has been reported in the literature is the rifle criteria, and it spells it out there on the left. It's one of those mnemonics, risk, injury, failure, loss, and then end-stage kidney or uh, end-stage renal disease, either one. And you have two specific sets of criteria, and one is GFR and one is urine output, and if you look further to the right, you'll see that you have risk and injury are very sensitive, high sensitivity, and in the failure loss and end stage, it's highly specific. And if you have an increase in your serum, serum creatinine by 1.5 or a decrease in GFR by 25%, greater than 25%, you're considered at risk. And the urine output criteria for that same risk, it's a urine output of less than a half a milliliter per kilogram per hour times six hours, you are at risk. Injury, a creatinine bump of two times or decrease of 50% or greater of 
uh, your uh, GFR or a urine output of less than five milliliters per kilogram or 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour times 12 hours. And then failure is a serum creatinine increase of three. Um, and you can look through the rest of that there and figure it all out. The thing about the risk and injury phase of this is what we discussed earlier, and I think it's a very important thing to consider, is many times in the acute phase, we are doing things that can mask risk or injury and not realize that this patient has a renal deficit, and that's because our methodology may not be that great. You can dilute the serum creatinine and be tricked into believing that the patient is really okay, because if that's changing, then your GFR calculation is going to be changed as well. If it's urine output criteria, uh, well, you know, you could be at 0.6 or 0.7 milliliters per kilogram per hour for six hours and not fit the criteria. That doesn't mean you don't really have a problem. In the STS, <coughs> excuse me, which is the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, renal failure is uh, indicate whether the patient had acute or worsening renal failure resulting in one or more of the following criteria. Increase of serum creatinine uh, greater than two or a two times increase in the most recent preoperative creatinine level uh, or there is a new requirement for dialysis postoperatively. So that's how the STS defines renal failure, and that's what goes in the reporting that then goes and comes back as to where you are graded. AKI cardiac surgery, what are the frequencies and causes? In this article, and this is going back all the way to 2006 in Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology, and I've alluded to this several times today, uh, acute renal failure occurs in up to 30% of patients who undergo cardiac surgery with dialysis being required in approximately 1% of all those patients. Uh, now, some say a little higher than that, but when I say dialysis, I don't necessarily only mean intermittent dialysis. I mean any form of renal replacement therapy uh, would qualify as dialysis for the, uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the context of this lecture and that patient population. Uh, obviously, they go on to say that, uh, that ARF is uh, associated with substantial increase in morbidity and mortality independent of all other factors. So everything else could be perfect, but if the patient develops uh, AKI, especially uh, acute renal failure, their morbidity and mortality go up significantly. There's multiple pathways, hemodynamic, inflammatory, nephrotoxic factors, all of these involved and overlap each other when it comes to uh, causes of kidney injury. Uh, there's been a lot of studies looking at this, though nothing really definitive, and they have tried to come up with various strategies uh, several compounds such as atrial natriuretic peptide and N-acetylcysteine 
to have shown promise, but really have never uh, become in the mainstream with what we do. And I know I saw, Tammy, you brought up NGAL as a marker of acute kidney injury, but that is not something that is routinely used. We still use serum creatinine, which can be very delayed and not necessarily as specific as you need it to be. NGAL is a much better marker, but not widely used. I don't think we use it clinically anywhere that we work. Mm -hmm. So it's never become, having something that has tremendously high sensitivity to tell you there is actually kidney injury here um, doesn't really exist in the clinical world. But then there's also the problem of what do we do about it when we see it? And sometimes we do, in fact, a lot of times, in my perspective, opinion, we do nothing. Not sure what your thoughts are, but those are my thoughts. I do want to read this to you because this comes from uh, O'Neill, uh, and this was published in 2016, and I think it's very important. Acute kidney injury complicates recovery from cardiac surgery, and again, in up to 30% of patients. So here we are, 10 years later, with the same exact incidence rate of acute kidney injury. Uh, and it impairs, of course, the function of the brain, lungs. We know that there's a tremendous amount of crosstalk between the kidneys and the brain, the kidneys and the lung, the kidneys and the heart. Every, they, all of these organs talk to each other. And uh, there was a, a, I don't know if you knew Dr. Hunkos or not. He was oh, yeah. down at, you knew Dr. You know Dr. Luis Hunkos? Yeah, extremely, yeah, okay, really, really super, the younger one, the super bright, super bright guy. Um, but he showed in his lab <coughs> that just by clamping the renal artery, you increase, <coughs> excuse me, you increase lung water tremendously. That's just by clamping the renal artery. And so, um, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount, as I said, of crosstalk. Um, renal ischemia, reperfusion injury, inflammatory, hemolysis, oxidative stress, cholesterol emboli, probably atheroma emboli, to all toxins contribute to this development and progression of AKI. Uh, preventive strategies are limited. I completely agree with that, but current evidence supports maintenance of renal perfusion and intravascular volume while avoiding venous congestion. Administration of balanced salt solutions, something that Dr. Navarre talked about, as opposed to high chloride intravenous fluids, and the avoidance of limitations of cardiopulmonary bypass exposure. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that because that's controversial. AKI that requires renal replacement therapy occurs in 2 to 5% of patients following cardiac surgery and is associated with a 50% mortality. Not at all surprising. And I think that this difference is that they took into consideration not just coronaries, as the previous study, which showed a 1%, but coronaries, valves, combined procedures, and others. So it also has to do with age, uh, as uh, we've alluded to in some of the previous lectures. Um, cardiac surgery continues to be a popular clinical model uh, to evaluate some of these therapeutics and off-label use of medications, non-pharmacologic treatments for AKI, uh, since cardiac surgery is a common operation now, and uh, typically it's elective, 
and provides a relative standardization, which I agree with all of this. Again, though, my issue is this next slide, and uh, there's the slide you stole from me, Tabby. There's my slide. Okay, there it is. Uh, and of course, this is from the same study. It's, it's the next slide, I think. But this shows some of those mechanisms. You have hemolysis, plasma-free hemoglobin. It acts as a vasoconstrictor. You have catecholamines. You have reactive oxygen species, lep, uh, lipid per, uh, peroxidation. You have leukocyte recruitment, inflama inflammation, atheroembolism, all of the ischemia, hypoperfusion, all of these things are contributors to the acute kidney injury paradigm. Uh, when we look at risk factors, this is from the same study, uh, the, uh, the risk factors for the development of acute kidney injury, and I highlighted following cardiac surgery because I don't think it's following cardiac surgery. I think that that's when we find out about it. The injury is occurring before the following part uh, ever exists. But preoperatively advanced age, female gender, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and I'm assuming female gender because most of the time females are smaller and you have a higher incidence of hemodilutional anemia. Hyperlipidemia, previous chronic kidney disease is a huge factor. Liver disease, PVD, uh, previous stroke, smoking history, diabetes, very, very, very uh, significant in its contribution. And of course, preoperative anemia, which is going to lead to <laughs> perioperative serious anemia and probably the need for transfusions. Intraoperatively, complex surgery. The longer the cases, the more acute kidney injury we see. The use of cardiopulmonary bypass and its duration in particular need to return to CPB, meaning you had a failure to wean and you were using rocket fuel, and that has tremendous impact on renal function. Low hematocrit or anemia during CPB, aortic cross clamp time, hypoperfusion, I think that happens way more often than we give it credit for, but I don't think it's because we don't flow enough. I think we don't deliver enough oxygen, and I'll explain that in my future slides. Hypovolemia, venous congestion, which is not that common intraoperatively unless you're doing the case off pump, then it can be a real problem. And if you uh, uh, occlude the venous return from the inferior portion of the body, the IVC coming out of the kidneys, you increase the resistance to flow through them, you will decrease your uh, renal perfusion. Emboli and other, uh, from cholesterol and other, and inotropy exposure. Postoperatively, vasopressors, inotropy, diuretic uh, exposure. Of course, Lasix, Lasix is nephrotoxic, but we have no problem giving it and giving it and giving it. Uh, blood transfusions, anemia, hypovolemia, venous congestion from, let's say, right heart failure, uh, and of course, cardiogenic shock for obvious reasons. Now, let's fast forward to 2020. Now we're 14 years into this. And it goes before this, actually. So I started in 2006. I could have started in 1996. I could have started in 1986. Acute kidney injury following on-pump or off-pump coronary, coronary artery bypass grafting in elderly patients. This is a retrospective propensity score matching analysis. And here we see acute kidney injury, 
is a sudden loss of kidney function defined by an acute increase in serum creatinine concentration and decrease in urine output. Up to 30% of patients. So we have made zero progress. Um, zero. And approximately 2% require uh, de novo dialysis of some sort. Postoperative AKI is associated with increased short and long-term morbidity and mortality. We all know that. It also goes on to talk about the multifactorial uh, uh, causes of AKI and ARF. Their conclusions for elderly patients, and this makes sense, it was one of the previous studies, preoperative risk factors. For elderly patients, AKI was common, common, but deterioration of dialysis was seldom incidence. Comparing with on-pump versus off-pump did not decrease the rates of severity of AKI. Long-term new onset of dialysis or mortality. AKI was associated with increased long-term new onset of dialysis and decreased long-term survival. Okay, so we know all of that, but their conclusion in their study was that there was no difference between on-pump and off-pump, but elderly patients were much more prone to AKI. All of that, I think, we have known and continue to know for the past several decades. So what do we actually know? Well, we know that AKI occurs up to 30% of all cases because I only took out three studies, but I, if I go and pull 15 studies or 20 studies or 30 studies, it's all going to say the same thing. AKI rates are, in my perspective, unacceptably high in cardiac surgery. And that's not to say it's that they don't recover, but again, they might recover. They might not need uh, dialysis. They may not go on to have end-stage kidney disease. However, we don't really know, because I could not find anything in the data to tell me, we don't really know the consequence of that AKI on that patient in five and 10 years down the road. I think it could be significant, but we just simply do not know. That's conjecture. Short-term clinically significant AKI occurs one to 5% of the time, depending on the type of procedure, risk factors preoperatively, et cetera, length of time on bypass, need for inotropy support, all of that stuff. AKI requiring de novo dialysis ranges from 0.3 to 2%, depending on which paper you read. Long-term effects of AKI, no matter its degree, is not fully known. AKI of any degree increases costs significantly because every patient that develops AKI, which is about 30%, have a longer length of stay that longer time to extubation, longer stay in the ICU, longer stay in the hospital. All of those things cost money. Uh, AKI of any degree increases costs. AKI leading to ARF is deadly. Older patients with pre-existing CKD are more at risk significantly. Complexity of case and duration of CPB are a major contributor. There exists many causes of AKI. We've been through them. I want to go over them one more time. Inflammatory, embolic, nephrotoxicity, 
hypoperfusion. Again, I'm going to uh, really drill on that because I think we tr underappreciate the degree to which we hypoperfuse the kidney. Physiologic uh, and physiologic alterations, which both Dr. Navarre and uh, Dr. Kutlany discussed in their lectures that going on cardiopulmonary bypass and having heart surgery in general is a very challenging physiologic environment for the kidney with a whole lot of things interacting that it's just not intended for. And it causes a, I believe I would, I would, I would uh, describe it as a hostile, a renally hostile environment when you have cardiac surgery uh, as a whole, but especially with cardiopulmonary bypass, hemodilution, hypothermia, all the things that you talked about that are negatively impacting uh, the uh, kidneys. So what I want to show you here, and I'll uh, point to this stuff. Uh, do we have sound? Yeah, there you go. So now you see them going on bypass on the left. All of these are happening simultaneously. So that's the patient monitor. That's the bypass machine. You see the heart. And I'm going to play it a couple of times and describe everything that we're looking at here. Let's let it go about another 15 seconds. I'm sorry. Oh, it's hard to see here. Can you see it here? That better? Okay. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to start it over again. Okay? So we're going to play this over again. So you see the heart nice and full. That's, I'm going to pause it just for a second. So I want you to see is, if you look over here, the perfusionist, Becky, has her hand, and she's opening this clamp. This clamp is connected to this line, and this is the venous line. That's going to be this that you see right here. The monitor is, speaks for itself. The CVP was not 280. The CVP was actually on this patient seven. However, the line stopped working. Either they were giving something through it or it got kinked or whatever it was. But you see the blood pressure, the heart rate 84. You see the blood pressure 106 over 56. So that's going to be a pulse pressure of 50 millimeters of mercury, right? We agree with that. So this is the venous reservoir that you see here. This venous reservoir, when she opens this clamp and drains this heart, is going to fill up with blood. And this heart is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So that's kind of the scene that you have to look at because I'm, we're going to drain it when we do that. Here's the right ventricle, right? This is the pulmonary artery. This is the aorta. This is the right atrium. Yes, this is the right ventricle. So generally speaking, anteriorly is the right ventricle. The LAD is over here behind what is the reflection of the pericardium, and that separates the right atrium from the left ventricle. I mean, the right ventricle from the left ventricle. The interventricular sulcus is right around here where I'm drawing. Um, so this is the right ventricle that you're seeing here. Right atrium, pulmonary artery, aorta. The aortic cannula is here. Okay. So I'm going to go back. Let's watch that again. You see the level in the oxygenator coming up, 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 draining. She's opened up. She's going up on her flow now, which was only zero. Now it's going up. It's almost to four liters. You see the right ventricle now completely collapsed. You see the right atrium start. I mean, the right ventricle collapsed. And you see the right atrium also collapsed and starting to lump 
where the, the uh, atrium is so empty it's collapsing around the tube. And then if you look down here, you see that our blood pressure has gone from a nice pulsatile pressure to a continuous pressure. So I'll play it one more time so we can see that again. And then I'll pause it in a couple of places. He said, go on bypass, so I paused it. So she's opened this clamp, okay? This reservoir is gonna fill with volume. Simultaneously to that, this atrium right here and this ventricle right here are going to start getting smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. This blood pressure that you see here is going to go from this pulsatility to a continuous flow. Mm -hmm. You're also gonna see the heart with some ectopy and it's gonna become a little bit tachycardic, uh, but that'll settle down after a minute. And then as soon as she moves over in this area here, you're gonna see a little box with a dial on it and it's, you're gonna see her increasing the flow so that this blood that's filling the reservoir gets thrown, put through the oxygenator back up. But I want you to also notice this oxygenator is nice and clear because it's got crystalloid in it and it's gonna have blood. So let me erase all of those marks mm -hmm. and let's watch that from the beginning. Here it goes. Now she's gonna took her going up on the flow. The reservoir is full. The heart is empty. The blood pressure is gone to a more continuous flow. So you've lost your pulsatility. So it's coming from here. So it's draining from here, the right atrium. Yes, going down this line into this venous reservoir. It comes out of the venous reservoir into this pump, out of the pump into the oxygenator, out of the oxygenator, and back up as now arterialized blood and goes into the aorta. So right atrium, through the perfusion circuit, into the ascending aorta. Is the aorta clamp? Not yet. Not yet. But it's gonna be. Clamped right there. So now you have a heart that is clamped. It's had cardioplegia administered to it. You can see that the, R, the heart is completely empty. The RV is clefted. The right atrium is completely collapsed. The pulmonary it's artery, still it's still draining, of course. Yes, because it's coming back through the SVC, IVC. Yes, it's still draining. Correct. So in this situation. Here's our venous, here's our arterials coming up here, and it's right there, okay? The venous reservoir, this is representing it, has 3,500 cc's of volume in it and a hemoglobin of seven. The blood flow is four liters per minute. So it's four liters going this way, four liters coming this way. So now arterialized blood going into the aorta. Mm -hmm. If I hemoconcentrate, 2,000 cc's out of that reservoir, the reservoir will have 1,500 mLs with a hemoglobin of 10, but I will have taken off 2,000 of either urine or ultrafiltrate, doesn't matter which. I can diurese the patient if they'll pee, they probably won't, or I can use a hemoconcentrator and remove that volume right there, okay? 
just gone. This will remain the same. This won't change. The flow is still going to be four liters. The heart is still going to be empty. And of course, if the heart is that empty, I, I'm not going to be able to put flow five liters. I can't flow five liters. There's not enough venous return. It'll collapse the atrium. And it'll suck the hole into the holes mm -hmm. of the cannula. So you can only flow what the size of this cannula and how much volume that venous capacitance system has. So as the venous capacitance system decreases, you'll, you're, if you drain the patient, exsanguinated the patient, you would have no flow. You're only emptying the heart. But if I take this volume off, I've increased my hemoglobin by 10. And here is why this matters. And Jim, this is very, I think, really something that um, uh, you, would, uh, you would agree with. If I take the previous example with the hemoglobin of seven, I would have a uh, arterial oxygen content of 9.83 milliliters per deciliter. And that would give me a DO2 at that flow of four liters of 393. I need five, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. I need a, that's DO2, not DO2I. I need an index of 5.4 liters per minute uh, at that hemoglobin to reach a DO2 of 750. So by increasing my hemoglobin, I increase, I'm sorry, so if the hemoglobin remains seven, my arterial oxygen content will be 9.83. With a hemoglobin of 10, my arterial oxygen content is 13.91. At this flow, I'll either have a DO2 of 393 with a hemoglobin of seven, or I'll have a DO2 of 556 with a hemoglobin of 10. But to reach a DO2 of 750, I would still need 5.4 liters of flow at a hemoglobin of 10. But if I kept my hemoglobin at seven, I would need a flow of 7.7 liters. I'm not getting 7.7 liters out of this pump, no matter how hard I try. Therein lies what I consider to be one of the major problems with uh, how we do cardiac surgery, how we do perfusion for cardiac surgery. I do not think we deliver enough oxygen to the kidney, and that is the, one of the major contributors to postoperative uh, AKI. You were measuring, uh, you were saying something about creatinine and um, urine flow. Do, do, do you take uh, stat urine, stat urine, concent urine sodium concentrations? I do not, but she is the clinical ICU person. Yeah. I'm only operating room, so that's a question for you. Not typically. Because when you have low urine flow um, and you have normal transport processes, you're collecting that transport will remove the sodium concentration and then lower the sodium concentration, sensing that the patient is in acute renal failure. Uh, if the sodium concentration is, is normal or approximately normal uh, for the blood, and that is around 140, 150, 
it's not reabsorbing sodium properly, which suggests that there is a transport defect. So you then have uh, evidence for acute tubular necrosis as opposed to uh, vascular uh, mediated acute renal failure. And I, I was just reading about that not too long ago, that urine sodium concentrations may be uh, coupled with urine flow. Uh, low urine flow means that the patient is, in, uh, is supposed to be retaining fluid, so okay. If that's the case in its normal function, it will, it will reabsorb sodium and give you a very low sodium concentration. Mm -hmm. So it's something worth doing, but it would have to be a stat sodium. So anyway, that, mm -hmm. so I was suggesting it. So, any questions, Jim? Any, any thoughts? thoughts? Well, no, my, my only thought is, is what you just described is the essence of perfusion. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. But yeah. again, m my point is, is that even with a hemoglobin of 10 and a flow of four liters, I still am gonna need a flow of 5.4, which may not be achievable in order to just achieve the lowest DO2 that is physiologically uh, appropriate. What has helped for me is I've calculated, uh, I've done my, my calculations based on the DO2I. Well, I mean, we could just take index. the patient's index and go from there. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, and, and, mm -hmm. and, but what you're describing is extremely important. And I think, uh, I think a lot of us forget that. Um, that we, that we really need to look at the numbers sometimes and see exactly what we're delivering. Well, you know, I mean, you bring up a very good point. I don't think anyone that I know uh, measures here. You can have, you have my slides, but I can give you this one. Um, I don't think anybody I know anymore measures COP. I don't think any, I mean, I, I there's a lot of people who don't even bother to run an albumin. I can't tell you how many times I ask, what's this patient's albumin? Uh, we don't know. And you get an albumin back, you get an albumin back, and it's 2.1. And you wonder why the patient looks like the Michelin man. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're swollen. And, you know, of course, when you're talking about taking the drapes off and you see a swollen patient, I can't remember who said this, but it's an extreme I think it was such a prophetic statement. And of course, when you see that generalized edema, the patient is anasarcic. And the, the uh, statement was that anasarca is not simply a visually displeasing mm -hmm. finding. All of, if you see a patient that looks like that on the outside, all of the organs look like that on the inside. Mm -hmm. And of course, with that much edema, third spacing, you're going to have the, uh, the, the, the parenchyma of the tissue and all of the microcapillary circulation is going to be grossly disrupted. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think of this? I think the other thing that probably hasn't been taken into account in uh, the 30% not changing is 
we're operating on patients that are older, sicker. Um, although people are really obese, they're chronically malnourished. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good um, point. And when you look at STS scoring, it doesn't take any of that stuff into account. It hits, you know, big factors, like it goes up significantly for age over 70. Um, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, it just lumps as general. Like your patient who has an A1C greater than 12 mm. compared to your patient with an A1C of seven is gonna be put in the same category and you can't account for that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of other stuff that goes into that that I think contributes to the 30%, not just that we haven't changed our practice completely. Okay, I mean, I think that's, 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 uh, that's fair. I think that's reasonable as well that we, but notwithstanding that, um, I don't think we really do know the causes. I think the causes that slide shows the multifactorial uh, reality mm -hmm. of acute kidney injury. You showed some incredible slides, especially the video of the afferent arterial. You showed that microvascular scan um, from um, uh, microvascular. It's a company out of uh, out of Denmark, I think, that has that mm -hmm. sublingual yeah. microvascular scan. Such an in incredibly powerful tool to see the microcirculation and how deranged it can become. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, I just think many of these things we don't completely understand. By and large, most people, we couldn't do cardiac surgery if it wasn't hard to kill people. Mm -hmm. The fact is, I mean, really, people are pretty <laughs> yeah. damn durable. Yeah, they and are. they can tolerate a tremendous amount of insult. But I feel like we don't see the kidney, the heart we see. Again, the patient, you know, has a hemiparesis. That's really bad and it's very obvious. But we don't see the kidney. I think that it is, as I said many times, one of the most underappreciated organs until it doesn't work right. And then all of a sudden yeah. it's, oh my God. Yeah, we don't do a lot of, of, of protective strategies, which I think we could do a little bit better with. We haven't even talked about ultrafiltration. We haven't even talked about continuous veno-veno hemofiltration and how we do it. We have, you brought up priming solutions, I think we should be using bicarb-based solutions, not acetate-based solutions uh, like sodium chloride. I think we should be using, you know, uh, uh, like the, um, uh, the uh, uh, dialysis solutions that are used for continuous dialysis, like Prismasol or the Braun fluid or the next stage fluid or Duosol, whatever the names are that they use. Um, I think those bicarb-based solutions are much better because you don't dilute down the bicarb, you don't have the acidosis from the fluid resuscitation or from the perfusion prime. And of course, I think ultrafiltration, more aggressive ultrafiltration is a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, I think that having drier, I think drier patients do better. Not desiccated, drier patients do better. And I think that to say ultrafiltrating that two liters of fluid off of that reservoir is a cause of AKI is absurd, but people say it. And so then you have overly hemodilute patients and an even lower DO2 or DO2I 
um, than you had previously. And that fluid has to go somewhere. It's either going to stay in the reservoir or it's going to third space or it's going to get sent to the cell saver and you're going to lose all of the platelets and plasma and proteins and everything else and give the red blood cells back and that's okay we don't there's not a lot of very good um universal understanding of what it is we do we really have tremendously diverse techniques in perfusion in the same community much less across multiple communities Right, I would agree, and I just want to mention a point that Kim reminded me of. I've had the opportunity to work at hospitals where, let's say that the patient has had more of an access to healthcare prior to them coming to the operating room for their heart surgery, mm -hmm. as opposed to patients who live in a demographic where they don't have access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, the patient populations and what we have to deal with at those two spectrums are very different. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, and so that is a whole other um, uh, aspect that has to be in, in, in involved. The patient that you're presented with may have been worked up, may not have been worked up. I've it. The patient has been refer referred to the cardiac surgeon by the cardiologist. There may not even be a primary health care physician involved in this. Mm -hmm. So their whole diabetes management, their whole, all of the other systems may not have even been looked at mm -hmm. before they even come to the operating room. So I think the whole issue of healthcare in general uh, either, either helps us or hurts us sometimes. Understood. I, I agree. And I think that, of course, we just do a we don't do as I mean, we have an end. There's we our health care system in many ways is the envy of the world. However. And with that said, we don't do everything great. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, preventative care needs to be something that we focus more on as a society to help us with these challenges for patients as they uh, continue to get uh, aged and they have uh, diseases that are that are genetically they're predisposed to right i agree it's 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 uh it's it's beyond the scope of our talk this afternoon clearly there are, <laughs> but it's uh, fun but, uh, <laughs> yeah so, um, but, um, you know, we just do, a, we just do our best. And what helps us is discussions like this to kind of reiterate some of the points that, you know, sometimes we may forget or sometimes we may overlook. And so uh, that's the benefit of having these discussions here like we're having this afternoon. Absolutely. Let's all treat the whole patient. Mm -hmm. Let's show the yeah. kidneys some love. Yes. <laughs> Okay, final talk of the day. How to protect the kidney. Finally, we're gonna get some answers. Dr. Kultuni, thank you so much. And Dr. Navar, all right. Answers to our questions. Uh, 
I'll, I'll try my best. Um, try, I mean, um, Concurso um, Zero publication that um, actually no exactly answer, but um, the best one that we can like a guidance, we can think about it and and then adapt um, for our job. I mean, um, before before presentation, I I am the same as every perfectionist. I think. Um, Please let me know what is the best way to do. Do you have the optimal four that we can do 2.4, 2.53, or anything? Do you have optimal hematokit? But until now, yes, no answer for this. But many clinical trial, many study try to. I mean, um, they they dedicate to to. Um, finally, I try to conclude everything is here, and um, I wish it is here a little bit. Yeah, uh, I do. Um, I started with how we can protect the kidney from, from cardiac surgery associated um, AKI that we talk all day for today. Um, I, actually, they have so, we think about the pre-operative, during the operative and post-operative. Right? And I, I'll focus for the, the, the perfusionist job, the perfusionist law, and what perfusionists can do. And that, that's, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to do um, for this presentation. I'm thinking about, I, I mean, I have four key points for maybe easier for thinking about. I divided into part. First part, CPV-related factor, and this is a four key point um, for me. The first one, we need to concern about temperature, and then I'll, I'll show you for, the, for some study. We need to think about hematokit. Hematokit does in, refer to DO2 also. Um, we need to concern about the, the blood pressure and then about the fourth, finally. I'll, I'll start with the temperature. Um, this is a recent study. Dr. Nawa sent me, um, just um, published, um, I mean, September 20, September this year. And they show, they compare the, the um, deep hypothermic circulatory arrest, that's um, we call the DSCA um, in this patient group. Um, Group um, divided, they, they compare with um, two groups. You can see the, let me show you. And then they, they follow patients um, after that, um, after the surgery, and see if the AKI happened or not. Um, they have to, um, let me show you. They compare the, I mean, the aortic surgery, the group with the SCA and the group without the SCA. I point out to, in case of we, we stop, that's we, that's we um, talk in the morning. I mean, we stop the circulation and then we follow up to see um, the, the kidney function. Is it different or not? The results show it's peak different show after the surgery, but when you follow up for a, for a long time, um, three months and a year, it, it doesn't show any different, but it's different after post-op. Yes, I would say yes. Um, so um, from this study, they conclude that the DSCA is correlated to related to AKI up to 48 hours. And also um, for the post-op um, for, for three months, but when compared after three months, it doesn't different. So what I um, want to um, show you for, for this, um, I want to show you that even you stop the circulation, even you deep hypothermic circulatory arrest, yes, it affects the AKI. Or even you 
didn't do the DSEA, I would say, yes, it's effect on, on the kidney also. Both are effect, but um, it's early or after that, it depends on, on what you do. And um, like I mentioned in the morning, for me, I'm, um, on my personal, I mean, during the hypothermia, um, we reduce the oxygen consumption. It, it's like a reasonable to protect in some way. But for the rewarming, um, I, I want to emphasize that we need to really, really concern in the rewarming period. That's that, why, um, why, that's because we, lead, we are going to return to normal function, but we are in the abnormal function. We are in the hemodilution. We are in the, um, I mean, low viscosity. So many things happen, but like we're coming. I, I feel like we are coming to, to, to normal situation, but the physiology um, during CPP is like the same way like this. It's not um, correlated like this. So we need to concern for the rewarming period. And then um, very nice study in the multiple center, um, I mean, um, maybe more than 6,000 patients that they follow up, um, they register, and they show very nice, um, very nice data the probability to um, occur for the AKI, you can see. If you reform, if you reform um, to 36.5 or, or to 37, the, probability, uh, the prob um, ability to AKI is very low. But if just only 0.5, from 37 to 37.5, you see it's really increased uh, the probability to happen for AKI. Really, I mean, it's very significant due to concern. Um, they conclude that um, the du duration of hypothermic perfusion, rewarming temperature greater than 37, was an independent predictor of AKI. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but I have to ask, because I, 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 this is very important information to me. What temperature, where is that temperature being measured? Is that the arterial blood temperature? Is that the bladder temperature? Which temperature is that? Arterial temperature. The arterial inflow temperature. Yes, the arterial inflow temperature, very good question. The arterial inflow temperature, you should reform, you set up the, the heater cooler, you should, um, and no more than 37. Very interesting, very, very interesting. And the more interesting that I want to show you is that, um, Actually, um, I want to, not only for, for kidney, but when we look at the, the brain, this is also a very nice study. They um, measure the GFAP. GFAP um, is very, very good biomarker to show the new neuron injury for the GFAP. And they show before CPB and after CPB, it's increasing GFAP. That means um, neural injury in some way, right? And then for the rewarming period, they measure the, the GFAP again. Very nice study. If you um, reform 0.2 degree per minute, um, they compare uh, the group of no stroke and stroke. If you compare to, if you reform 0.2 degree Celsius per minute, compare with more than 0.3 degree Celsius per minute, the stroke happen in different way. And also the GFAP increasing in the group of you reform more than 0.3 degrees Celsius per minute. 
And for the guideline, they um, suggest that we should, we, when we rewarm, we should concern no more than 0.5 degrees Celsius per degree. Mm. And again, from this study, they, um, they point to, you should to concern um, your arterial flow um, for the temperature no more than 37. And that is um, the point of temperature that I think it may be help um, for some way of to protect the AKI. And then I'll, I'll talk about the, the hematokit. Um, I mentioned that it's not just only hematokit, but it's referred for the DO2 also. Again, I showed this slide and um, um, I mean, right now we, we um, mostly we talk about the DO2 for, for, for the perfusionist that's the um, from the, the study from um, Dr. Lanushi, and a very nice course from him, and I'll <laughs> go from him. Running CPB below the critical DO2 means pushing patient into the anaerobic zone, a bad path to stay, and I totally agree with this. And again, um, like Joe um, showed before, and they have some like a quick guideline, um, I want to point out for the hemoglobin, um, hemoglobin hematokit, which is referred to the DO2I. Um, for example, um, the BSA 1.5, if we, if we um, I mean, if we run um, cardiac index about two, this means that we shouldn't run for about, what's about, what's, shouldn't run for about three, right? That means you need to keep hemoglobin about 10, 10, um, it's about 30 for hematokit. But sometimes we cannot control four at the same time. Sometimes we need to low four, right? So for, I mean, for the perfusionist practice, we, we sometimes happen that we need to low four. If you need to low four or you need to increase four, you need to think about the hemoglobin. For example, normally we should run about um, four at three, cardiac index two, which is a four at three. If you low four to, for example, 2.7, you need the hemoglobin about 11 to maintain DO2 at 280. So mm -hmm. I, I, I point, um, this point does mean um, we, try, we need to concern your flow correlate with um, the hemoglobin, hematokit, the DO2, DO2I, that we talk about all the many multi-factor effects and, and we need to think about it. And again, um, I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk about the ultrafiltration um, during CPB, even MAP, CAP, or, I mean, um, it's held to, like a professional training, we know um, when we filtrate water out, we increase the hematokit. It shouldn't be good for, uh, for kidney, because you increase hematokit, you increase um, DO2, also um, high oncotic pressure, which is um, lecture in the morning, high oncotic pressure seems good protect um, kidney. And Dr. Navar said in his lecture yes. that a higher than normal oncotic pressure is much preferred to a lower than normal oncotic pressure, which, which is, is that correct? Slightly higher. Yeah, I, I think it's true, yes. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the, the principle that we learn about uh, when we do carb, why we do carb um, is have a protective, so many way increasing hematokit, as, as I mentioned. Um, before I go that, um, I very appreciate for, for this study. They show um, the body weight, I mean the body weight, weight gain during perioperative weight gain percent 
if in the percent during perioperative weight gain more than 20 percent, mm -hmm. no one survived from this study. Yes. So that means we need to, I mean, for the fluid management, mm -hmm. need to very, very concerned. And I point to this because even MAR for cup does help a lot to improve the, the fluid balance in, in our bodies. Um, my personal, I do agree to, to do the out of fluidation. I mean, for mine, but some study, um, that's, that's I mentioned um, about the benefit of out of fluidation um, before, but recent study just from um, 2021, they show conventional out of fluidation techniques like a cup video. Um, it's from it's like a have um, some adverse effect to um, for the AKI, and that's um, I mean the the point that we're talking um, so um, widely in for for perfusion it's like a chain our our principle. Yeah, it doesn't. I see this, and this is some of this is what I I have read many studies like this, and I know a lot of cardiac surgeons, and it of course it's published data. Uh, it's coming from a reputable uh, uh, journal um, by a reputable researcher, but it is it 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 doesn't make any sense that there's increased um, uh, 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 morbidity associated with ultrafiltration during cardiac surgery. But um, actually. Um it depends on, I mean, for the volume you, you t took out, if less than 30, 32 mill, milligram, um, I mean, less than 32 cc per, per kilogram, it, it's okay, you see, from the data, you see. Ah, uh, okay. But, I mean, um, mostly we, we like, uh, we widely to talk, um, the cup, um, like, get more AKI, but you need to, see the data in the detail. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that I want to point from this study. It's happened, but it's happened if you um, filtered more than 32, um, 32 cc per kilogram. And they write um, in the discussion, it's like a, you know, parad paradoxical um, happen. It shouldn't be good, but why we, we see the bad effect and they, they show from this. Um, in the result, removal of the weight in the cup volume more than 32 cc per kilogram increased the risk of post-operative AKI. Which so, in our patients is three liters. We have, most of our patients are 100 kilos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we usually ultrafiltrate off our entire pump volume mm -hmm. unless they wrap. Um, so if my pump volume is 1200 cc's, I take 1,200 cc's as a minimum, and then we give cardioplegia. If that's another 1,000 cc's, I'll take that 1,000 cc's. But I have to take into consideration that anesthesia generally treats hypotension, hypertension, and normotension all the same way, and that's by giving a lot of volume. Mm -hmm. So they may have given the patient two or three liters of volume. So for me to come out of there with only three liters of ultrafiltrations pretty thin. I'm usually a little higher. I could be higher than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really depends on, and of course, did the patient, was the patient in heart failure preoperatively? Mm -hmm. Was their heart stuffed full of volume and they were already 
total body fluid overloaded mm -hmm. and needed to be normalized. So there's a lot of other factors involved, but I would say 32, 32 and a half cc's per kilogram uh, of ultrafiltrates, pretty common. Yeah, um, but um, in the discussion um, for some, I mean, some point of discussion, they said maybe because of hypoperfusion, but I don't get for this point, um, I mean, why hypoperfusion happened during CPB, because we can control four. Do you have any ideas about it? I, I don't think we, we do I, the hypoperfusion during we do carb, but, mm -hmm. but they point out for this. Yeah, I don't know. And I just think, I think that just from the perfusion aspect of it, so AKI is multifactorial. Mm -hmm. The impact of CPB is equally multifactorial. What oxygenator are you using? What flows do you use? What kind of hemodilution do you use? Do you hemoconcentrate or not? Um, what kind of acid-base balance do you maintain? Do you check and make sure your lactates are cleared? What's your albumin level? That's probably not in this study at all, uh, mm -hmm. where they even check that. So mm -hmm. how much of that is gonna be an influence on how much volume you do or don't take off? Do you use mannitol or not use mannitol? Are you using diuretics or not using diuretics? You know, we can, the, the, the causes, are you using, uh, 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 are you using biocompatible surfaces in your in your uh, circuit um, yeah, so that you do or don't have a higher or lesser degree of uh, inflammatory processes mm -hmm. that go on? I mean, it, the, the problem is, is that everybody does their perfusion and their perfusion circuit, though similar, but different. Mm -hmm. And a lot, what temperature are they cooling to? Yeah. How fast are they rewarming? You just brought up that point. So there's so many things that influence the end result mm -hmm. that are not taken into account in most studies. There's mm -hmm. not a standard standardization. Mm -hmm. You know, if you talk to a cardiac surgeon and you ask them, there's a 50% lesion in the LAD, they're not going to bypass it. They're not bypassing that lesion, 40%, we'll say 40%. They're not gonna bypass that lesion because the bi there's standard things. They're going to use the lima to the LAD mm. if possible, mm -hmm. preferentially, because that's the way you do it. You do a sternotomy the same way. It doesn't matter what surgeon it is, the sternotomy is a sternotomy. Mm -hmm. Sewing the bypasses on is sewing the bypasses on. There's very little difference and doing heart surgery from one surgeon to another. Now, one may be better than the other, faster than the other, but you know what I'm trying to say. The mm -hmm. operation is the operation is the operation. Mm -hmm. In perfusion, it's not that way. There's all types of variations mm -hmm. that we do. And so we, as a profession, have literally very few standardized approaches towards doing bypass. Mm. Some people use 100% FiO2 uh, mm. because they don't want any nitrogen. They feel that nitrogen is, uh, cre uh, creates more GME and that any GME are more likely to remain in the circulation. So they use 100% FiO2 on all of their cases.
Um, others believe that, no, I turn my FO2 down because I don't want to have, you know, these big high PO2s and concern about, I, I, I've heard that there's concern about oxygen toxicity. I don't understand. I don't think you would, but that's what they believe and that's the way they practice. So there's a lot of differences in practice. And then pressures. One cardiac surgeon wants the pressure at 50. I don't want it above 50. I don't want it below 50. I want it at 50 the entire case. Mm -hmm. Another cardiac surgeon wants it at 70. Another cardiac surgeon wants it tailored to that patient's history. And, you know, hey, they got some carotid disease. They got some long-term hypertension. Let's run the perfusion pressures higher today. Um, you know, and, 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 and so, there's a lot of variation, and there are other surgeons, though, that doesn't matter the patient's hypertensive, mm -hmm. doesn't matter the patient mm -hmm. has pre-existing kidney mm -hmm. disease. I want the pressure at 50, and that's where I want the pressure, because he wants to do the operation, or she wants to do the operation. So those things do occur, and they're usually not part of the study or included in the analyses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I do. And what about your team? Um, you do cough? Is Jim here? Yeah, Jim's here. Yeah, you do yes, cup. Yes, I'm uh, sorry. Any you do cup um, in your case? Um, yeah, occasionally. Uh, I just want to say that that Joe brings up a lot of interesting points. That mm -hmm. every, it's all the same, but it's all different in some mm -hmm. strange way. Yeah. And no two patients are the same. Mm -hmm. The only point I want to bring up is if. I have tried in the past, and I still do, is I try to follow up on the patients that I've done to try to keep a logbook and try to get some sort of understanding of what did I do or what didn't I do to produce a result, be it positive or negative. And granted, that takes a lot of time and it takes extra work that some of us may or may not want to do, but I think as a profession, if you do follow up with the patients they, and speak to the ICU nurses, um, I can't tell you uh, how many hours I've spent after I've brought the patient back to the ICU that I sit with the ICU nurses and I explain what really, really happened in the OR. Mm -hmm. Not the report that they got, but what really happened in the OR. Mm -hmm. And the stories can be completely different. And so if you, for, myself i've developed these relationships with the icu nurses just to follow up on the patients to the point where the the icu nurses could tell who the perfusionist was for that particular case i believe that yeah i believe that yeah. once they realize how all of this actually does sort of work because a lot of times they, they but it, it, when you show that kind of interest, they start noticing those differences. Mm -hmm. yes, and I yes. think that's very, that's, I think that's what separates professionals from mm -hmm. technicians a lot. But a lot of people are very happy with just being technicians and going in and, you know, they do great, they do a great case. But, you know, yes, I mean, they, they do a safe case. Let me put it that way. Let me, not, let me rephrase yeah. that. They do yeah. a safe case for the immediate period of time. We don't know right. what other issues might occur or not occur, but showing that interest, I think, is you know part of the reason why you're an instructor at Rush, right? Right. Is, um, is it a job or is it a passion? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's as simple as that. I agree. 
Please, I'm so sorry. No, you're good. Well, you're good. Okay. Um, I talk about the, the temperature that we need to concern, the hematokit DO2, and then I'll go for the arterial blood pressure. Um, one of, I mean, um, actually, I, I'm interested in this part, individual blood pressure. Do, do you, um, what, what do you think about um, this one? I mean, the in, actually, we are different. Okay. Our mean arterial blood pressure is, um, I mean, we are the range, but actually we are individual. We mean individual blood pressure. And then they have the study. They study, actually they, they study the, the renal auto, uh, sorry, the, the cerebral auto regulation. And then they calculate the upper limit and the lower limit. Mm -hmm. And they, they um, found that the optimal mean arterial blood pressure for the cerebral autoregulation is about 70, 78. Mm -hmm. And in this group, um, maybe 400 or 600 um, 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 participants, the lower limit of cerebral, but, um, but for the LLA is about 65. The upper limit is about 84. And the optimal, I mean, the, the average, the optimal about 78. But in, in, the, the, in the study group, they found that 70, 17% the LLA above the, the optimal MAP, above the optimal um, this one, and 29% the ULA, the upper limit below the optimal MAP. Well, you bring up another really good point. Uh, I, you know, I wish it were easier to do, but I believe in transcranial Doppler, you know, Bob Groom, who did a lot of work on that uh, a couple of decades ago, and a lot of people, including myself, thought he was a crackpot to some degree, and I was wrong, and I've apologized to Bob many times. Uh, but today, when I consider, you know, cerebral oximetry is what we have, but it is, of course, a mixed uh, number with skin, bone, arterial, venous, um, and it's the it's what we use to determine whether or not we have good cerebral perfusion, but it's only looking in that one watershed area in the frontal lobe area. Um, having transcranial Doppler with a a, a uh, uh, ultrasound going to the middle cerebral artery, you would see flow, and you know you have good flow. So if you're worried about flow dependent uh, perfusion, flow dependent mm -hmm. cerebral perfusion, mm -hmm. you would be able to see that because you could measure flow, you could measure velocity, you could measure a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and we don't do it because of cost and inconvenience yeah. and, right. you know, all those things. But we, I think we should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I point out this um, because I want to, to show that the average mean natural pressure that we keep, but it's not proper for some group. And the number is, is not less, you know, 17% and 29%. That um, total is more than 40%. So that means it's not proper for, for in some group. I'm trying. <laughs> it's thinking. Hmm. It's spinning. Did we run out of internet? No, internet is okay. Just, just network. Uh-huh. I'm trying again. It's, 
It's not doing it. Do I need to reset it? You might need to restart it. Yeah. You can keep talking. Keep, but I agree. I think uh, we generally run lower than uh, lower perfusion pressures. We're, we're, we're going to be happy with a, uh, a, a mean arterial of 50 or 60 most of the time. And uh, you're probably right. That's too low. Mm -hmm. I, I want to show the next slide because I keep, they, you can't they, show they, it they again. Take your time. I mean, uh. I mean they, they, and they found a correlation between the suitable autoregulation <laughs> and if you run the lower that is its effect on kidney function. That makes sense because the only organ that I know of that takes more blood flow per kilogram of weight is the brain, right? So that's about seven. No, CCs the per gram. The kid more, kidney does more than the yeah, brain. Yeah, but, no. but it's not. It's not primary nutrient blood flow because it's for. It's for. For filtration. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't need that for for. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, I just turned it off and I'm turning it back on. We've run out of internet. They said <laughs> okay. that you've. Oh, it'll it'll come back up. I think as long as you have as long as you have Wi-Fi or whatever it is you need. Mm, okay. <laughs> How do we protect? Yeah. So you were on. I think you were. Yeah. Let's see. She was right there. Okay, and uh, I'm going to share it. Okay, it's sharing to Joe's iMac. Uh, we're falling apart here. Not working? Okay, well, it normally would by now. Do you have your slides? Yes. Oh, you have them? I did. Oh, do you just want me to share my laptop? See, I just don't understand what you want me to do. Oh, put it on here. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's dead. <coughs> okay. Now I understand what you wanted me to do. Effective CPB. That's it, right? The effective CPB associated, that's it. No, the, no, not the effect. Not the effect? No. That's, uh, that's that one right there, right? No. Which no. one is it? Excuse me. That's the only two this I have. One, one. Oh, it's this one. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. Sorry, everyone. We're, we're you guys can talk. Don't leave me just everybody staring at me, and I'm very <laughs> conscious. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> it's and still it's, thinking. Uh, so the, uh, there it goes. So okay. And here's your okay. remote. Thank you. Oh, I and feel they'll like put a... that up. Hey, everybody wave. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
We, you know what? We're a, I'll talk. We're a good. We're, everybody's being quiet. We're a great-looking group. Yeah. You know, let me tell you something. We are the best-looking group. Jim, do you not agree? <laughs> hey, no, no truer words have been spoken. <laughs> I mean, you know. Look, I got a reputation in the hospitals. All right. I, I, I mean. I do. Remar <laughs> What's my nickname? Remarkably Calm Joe. Remarkably Calm Joe. That's my nickname. Oh. Not I always it was true. Big, sexy. Not always true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're oh. back. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. All right. Come and on. Then, uh... Tequila is waiting. <laughs> Tequila's waiting, doctor. Um, yeah, and, and I show you, um, again, um, they measure the cerebral auto-regulation and the, the flow, um, as I show you. It's even the optimal, the, the optimal value, but they have some patient um, that's lower and upper the, the limit. That's yeah, the well, I mean, yeah. according to that, 46% mm -hmm. of all patients aren't, are not within mm -hmm. the best range for auto-regulation. Yes, but the in, interesting point is that, and when they, they look at the the urine the urine flow, mm -hmm. they found that when the mean arterial pressure, you see the, the this box, this one is about zero. If it's lower than twenty, of the lower limit, it decreasing. You see, urine flow what lower than is what at the the LLA. If it's lower LLA, more than twenty millimeter mercury. And when the mean arterial pressure higher than 40 millimeter mercury above the, the LLA, the urine folate, but higher than the LLA. So that, that's why they, they try to, like, it's link between the cerebral autoregulation and renal and try to figure out the optimal, um, optimal pressure that we can do. I think it's like a hope to... So there's a direct correlation between cerebral perfusion and renal perfusion is what you're saying yeah for the pressure for, for the pressure. pressure yes so um so the from the they conclude that um patient with cardiac surgery um, um associated aki that we talk all day today has a lower urine folate than the patient without the aki you, you see from from this slide this is no aki this is the aki and when they they yeah. look mm -hmm. at the 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 CPV urine flow and correlate with the with the pressure at the cerebral autoregulation. And then the key point of the study, it, actually they showed three studies from six, um, 2016, 2017, and I, I believe that 2019. The key point of that is the association of auricular and AKI was stronger when mean arterial pressure was below the individual low limit of cerebral autoregulation. Uh -huh. And then maintain mean arterial pressure above an individual lower limit of cerebral autoregulation might reduce the acute kidney injury. That's the point out mm -hmm. from this. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's... Um, so that I want to, I mean, I want to focus on individual um, mean arterial pressure that we, we didn't do that right now. I mean, um, we haven't do for focus on it, but maybe it's hoped in the future mm -hmm. that we may, we may um, have some, mm -hmm. like a solution for but AKI. That is, of course, and I don't mean to, 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 to 
ask these questions, but I think that people are asking these questions. That is um, pressure raised by increasing flow with the same resistance by having a certain flow, DO2, hemoglobin, COP, and systemic vascular resistance or artificially raising the pressure above the, the cerebral autoregulation pressure, notwithstanding what the flow is, because that's all going to play a role in it, right? Mm -hmm. I can flow three liters on a patient that needs five and give you a blood pressure of 90, a mean pressure of 90 all day long. I can just make the SVR 2,500. But you're infusing a lot of vasoconstrictors. Of course, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. 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 on its... Yeah. That, would, that would nullify in, some of those issues. Right. Yeah. In isolation, yeah. that doesn't really tell me how I have that pressure. So you don't, do you understand what yeah. I'm saying? You say that again. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. So back to the key points. Maintaining mean arterial pressure above an individual's lower limit of cerebral autoregulation might reduce the risk of acute injury. What I'm saying is, does the study describe how the blood pressure was maintained above the individual's lower limit of cerebral autoregulation? Was it by increasing flow? Was it by giving pressors and increasing the systemic vascular resistance? How was it accomplished? That's a good question. But from the study, it's just um, normal procedure of CPB. Um, I can't answer how. I mean, it's just a um, normal procedure yes, that, that but we it's, do. Yeah. No, and I don't think. the reason it yeah, should be yeah. with, by, I, by maintaining flow and not, and not just constricting. But that be, stands yes. to reason, yeah. but that doesn't. You know, that's the problem with, I think, some of these studies is the variability of perfusion. Mm -hmm. Some people don't use pressors. They only increase the flow. Um, others use a lot of pressors. Again, without knowing the details of the technique, the study gets muddied. Mm -hmm. All right. In yeah, my perspective. I got you. I got you. Yes. Um, Why is cerebral autoregulation instead of renal autoregulation? Although it, it's kind of like the same, but, but why did they relate the cerebral autoregulation to kidney function? I don't know. You have to ask her. Why did they relate cerebral autoregulation to kidney function? Why? To, why we yeah, were they just an association? You mean brain autoregulation? As a, and, and it said the last conclusion was that by maintaining it above the lower limit of cerebral autoregulation help main, maintain kidney function. Because they found the oliculia. If lower than the lower limit of um, cerebral autoregulation, they found oliculia. It's about the same, probably. Yeah, I think that's yeah, what so she was saying, same. is that there's an association. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think well, it was associative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, maybe it's convenient. I don't know whatever. Maybe they knew more. Maybe they knew more about cerebral autoregulation than they did kidney autoregulation. It may be easier to see it. Possibly so. Yeah. Yeah, because again, yeah. you can use transcranial oh, Doppler, oh, but you cannot use. You routinely. don't have. Routinely, you're measuring some some index of of, of cerebral of, of brain autoregulation. 
You can. Okay. I'm saying that it's easier to do that. Do, yeah. It would be easier to do that than to try and measure right. renal flow. So it's up. a surrogate. That's what I would think. Surrogate. But yeah. That's okay because it, they are similar. <laughs> the the uh, the the regulatory plateau. I don't think it's quite as flat because. But, but that may be the only main difference. The, the inflection point is very similar, right around 70, wasn't it? Yeah, around that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But some, some study didn't show high arterial pressure um, protect the kidney, you see. This study show high arterial pressure doing CPB may not reduce the risk of AKI. I mean, I, I just tried to, to show so many, some, some studies. Um, they study in, um, it, I believe, in aging patient. Um, oh, because it depends how they raise the arterial pressure. Yeah, but um, but it, it doesn't help. Um, high arterial pressure, more than 60 millimeter mercury from the study, um, but it doesn't improve acute kidney injury. But I mean, um, the same, the rate is the same. Well, that would depend. On, maybe that answers your Joe's uh, question. Uh, it depends on how they raise the blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's the yeah. that's the question, and that may be in the study, but I don't know. For, for this 60 millimeter mercury, for for this study, but the conclusion is is very nice conclusion. I mean, even high blood pressure or I, I don't want to say low blood pressure. I mean, um, more than 60 or or about 60, the kidney injury rate it it. Doesn't different between the two groups, but the conclusion is very nice. I, I, I like the conclusion. Cardiac surgery should therefore be considered not only a risk factor for developing AKI, but also a risk factor for permanent loss of renal function. Wait a minute. I, you like that conclusion? I, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> I need to. Me cardiac surgery should benefit the kidney. Mm. It, we should have a conclusion that cardiac surgery done right reduces kidney injury, yeah. and then send all the patients to us. <laughs> no, I, I understand you. Yeah, but I mean, um, the, the, the result showed it doesn't different between mm. high blood pressure or, or blood pressure above 60. It, it doesn't different. That means it's effect on kidney, even you high blood pressure, or even you, you maintain the same rate blood pressure. Mm -hmm. it not only AKI, but it's, it's like an impair for long term. That's yes. from the conclusion. Yeah, I think yeah. I think I think I've always I think I've always recognized yeah. and believed that. Mm -hmm. And and also they they, they found um, I mean um, they measured uh, the NGAO, um which is show the tubular mm -hmm. injury, which is the same in in both groups. So um, I talk about the temperature, how to con control, right? I'll talk about the hematokit, the, um, the DO2. I talk about the pressure. Maybe we need to keep um, correlated with the cerebral autoregulation. And then I'll show you for the, the blood flow. Um, it's very, I mean, um, the question for perfusion is how optimal blood flow that we can, we can do. Like, like I mentioned, cardiac index 2.4. Five to five seventy. What's about you? Huh? What's about um, when you run CPB for you, Joe? For the cardiac cardiac index? Index. Um, you know, it it it's gonna vary, uh, but I would say between, depending on what's going on with the procedure. Uh, you know, 
index of 2.2, 2.4, maybe less if they're having trouble, we're having drainage issues, they're pulling the heart over really hard to try to get to a PDA or an OM or something like that graft. Um, So, you know, but I would say I try not to go under 1.6 for any length of time, and I try to stay between 2, 2.4, 2.2 probably in that range. About 2.2, 2.4, yeah. Uh, Generally speaking. Yeah, um, 2.4 for me also. But that's going to depend on hematocrit. That's going to depend on yes. other factors yeah, as that, well. Yeah, that we talk about, yeah. And um, the study in, in animal study also is nice study from, from the Dr. Evans team. Um, just probably in 2020, and they show um, <laughs> it's too far for me, and I can see um, clearly lovely. But um, they show the effect. You maintain, in, you increase for with increased um, blood pressure by, I, I mean, even medication or flow, you control from the heart lung machine, and also you give the vasopressor all together, both improve um, kidney function. Huh. They, um, like I mentioned, it's too far for exhaust. Excuse me, Joe. Um, can I uh, have a seat? It's too far from me. I cannot see. It. Oh, you can't see it. Yeah. Oh. Um. Oh, come sit over here. Yeah. Okay. Th- thank you. Yeah, you can walk around. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I, no, I you don't have to be it. sorry. No, no worries. I can't. Come sit here. Yeah. There. Okay. Thank you. Oh yeah. Just like you didn't know she'd take over. She walked through there really easily. I did not. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll show, I'll show this slide. And you can see for, um, from the screen at the standard, that means standard CPV that, that we did. And if you increase flow and also you give medication, which is uh, increased blood pressure, all of this is increased renal, you, you can see increased systemic DO2 is increased. Um, and for the for the um, light column is increase um, oxygen uh, renal DO2 also, which is they conclude that is help you increase flow and you use the vasopressor for increase um, mean natural pressure, both it improve kidney function. And then um, f- from this study. They also um, compare between pulsatile and non-pulsatile. They start from um, non-pulsatile four, and when they switch to um, pulsatile, and then they switch to non-pulsatile again from the, the T-series of the experiment, and compare pulsatile and non-pulsatile. Both pulsatile and non-pulsatile, it no effects on, on kidney. I mean, um, the, the result is same. It, similar in, in both pulsatile and non-pulsatile. So they, they conclude from the study that increased for, I mean, like a high folate with um, increased mean arterial pressure by vasopressor all together improve kidney function. But this is from animal study. Mm-hmm. And for the, uh, for the clinical study that I show in the morning, and I, I want to um, emphasize again, they compare the, the CPV4 between cardiac index 2.4, 2.7, and at cardiac index at 3. And you can see at 
2.7 and um, cardiac in the tree is improved, uh, increasing the DO2, the, the nature from the DO2i. And when they look at specific at the renal function, both um, cardiac index at 2.7 and at 3, if, um, yes, again, it improved um, um, all together of the renal function, like uh, uh, decrease the renal extraction rate. Decrease renal extraction rate is mean that um, the mismatch is better, right? So that's very, um, from the, very good from the studies that show this. And then again, the um, study for the clinical trial right now, I expect um, for finish and next year, the participants, about um, 100 participants, um, they compare the flow about 2.4 and 2.9, and um, they point out for the renal function and compare for the renal injury also. But um, we need to, I mean, waiting for, for the result for this clinical trial. And this is the four factor that relate for form the CPB. And I want to point out for um, just remind for those two things. The first one is biocompatibility coating. I think I believe that we use that um, already. I mean, that's most, normal. Yeah, that's normal. Yes, yeah. you can still get, uh, but you have to special order mm -hmm. non-biocompatible uh, materials. It'd be very rare, but, but that, that's only within the past probably. 10 years. But this is the oxygenator. But what about the tubing? The tubing as well. So oh, they have, okay. yeah, most of the tubing is now extruded with a uh, process as opposed to a coating mm -hmm. uh, like Carmita or Trillium or something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, they use uh, a particular type of etching. It's called a smart uh, tubing of some sort, but they use, John, uh, 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 Jim, you might be able to talk more about that. But it's something to do with the uh, with the uh, uh, internal lumen being designed so that a first pass lays down a layer of protein and acts as a mm -hmm. pseudo endothelial lining. Mm. Probably pretty rudimentary, but that's that's the best I could dis dis explain it. You have any thoughts on that, yeah, that's Jim? That's about right. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's about right. It's. Um... I'm not familiar with the um, with the whole process. Either it's been treated or it hasn't been treated. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not privy to all of the all of the coatings and all of the techniques or anything like that. Right. It's either coated or it's not. Right. So our oxygenators it's very hard. You can get tubing that's non biocompatible. I think fairly right. easily still, but everything we use from uh, catheter connection to catheter connection, all the entire circuit is uh, is has some type of biocompatible, um, either material or design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I just want to point out. Yeah, that that is how even you use the heparin um, coated or or anything that's coated. But yes, just um to remind is here for reduce the inflammatory response. So, I mean for the clinical trial, the outcome in, in the same way, just mm -hmm. to point out that that's held out a lot. And um, the last one that I, I want to discuss is about the, how you pronounce Mayak. Oh, uh, yes, we'll just say 
minimally invasive extracorporeal mm -hmm. circuit. Mm -hmm. It's a closed circuit. You see that they have a bag up there that they're using as a reservoir, uh, but basically it's a reservoir-less mm, yeah. system. And the whole idea, you don't have pump suckers, you don't have vents, uh, because the uh, they want to reduce or eliminate the blood-air interface because that is understood to be extremely pro-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. What uh, is driving the pressure? You have a, it's like an ECMO. You still have it? Okay. Yes, you still have flow. It's basically doing cardiac surgery with just an ECMO and they use that bag to drain off volume from the patient's heart and drain it just enough so that they can continue to have flow, but it's a closed system. So when you do regular bypass, you have the main arterial circuit uh, and the reservoir, but you also have a cardiotomy sucker and you have vents. And as those suckers and vents work, they will draw and mix with air, and then it goes into a the venous re the, the the cardiotomy compartment of the venous reservoir and become defoamed, and then go back into the main venous reservoir. That blood air interface is known to be very pro-inflammatory, uh, and this system. It does work for those that are patient and want to use it, but most surgeons want suckers and they want vents and they want to be able to do the operation. You could do a coronary this way. Um, I know they do valves with it in Europe, uh, but it has never really, I don't believe it's very well adapted in other words i don't think mm -hmm. that it's a lot of people doing it's very uncommon no. um and i don't think that it uh it's it makes doing the operation a lot more challenging so your question is am i going to get a good operation here or am i going to not have a blood or air, blood air interface but so basically still moving. Still no not in this case no no, in, in, in no not in that case either no the heart still gets stopped so why would they get a good operation then because you're not going to have other means of draining the heart and clearing the field. Oh, okay. So it's not uh, as convenient yeah, 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 for yeah, the yeah, surgeon. Yeah. It's really more visibility than okay. it is anything else. Right. But if you're skilled at it and it's what you are committed to doing, um, you can do it. But you have to have the patience and the understanding of the limitations of the system. And a lot of surgeons have zero patients, actually have a negative integer patients <laughs> yeah. level, and uh, they want suckers and they want well, vents. Always just draining it off. You lose too much. N no, it's it, with this system. When you're doing this, there's a very fine line, and I don't know if you can see the picture or not, but that basically becomes the reservoir. And there's a very fine line when you're using a closed circuit like an ECMO and volume in the patient. So you can empty the heart, but you can only empty the venous capacitance system so much before you have no flow anymore because mm -hmm. there's the, it's the venous system collapses. Yeah, and so having that balance is challenging to maintain to keep good flow for the patient. Generally, when you do these cases, you uh, are really running much lower flows 
than you normally would with an open system. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives you a lot less versatility as far as that's concerned. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I just point out um, from the, because um, the show is, you know, it's like VLAN CPB in the closed circuit. I, I think like the same at ECMO. That's more physiologic um, that they show the benefit to microcirculation. Mm -hmm. Maybe in, like uh, improve the kidney function. But, mm -hmm. but a, lot I, less I no, a lot less hemodilution as well. Yeah, but um, I have no experience on this, but just um, want to point out and uh, to discuss with you. But yeah, maybe help. I, I mean, um, I have never do that, um, but just um, right now that's, that they update for, for this. And also for the for the I think the bundle for the Kidigo um recommend um for how we can protect the, the AKIs. Um we need to cost monitor for the renal function. Um if we can do we uh, monitor the hemodynamic as we talk um all day um, what's about the pressure, what's about the fall. Also we need to optimize the, the fluid. Um like, like you talk about the albumin, the manitol, um you, what's about your priming? So um, our priming circuit is, uh, you know, right about, if we have zero in our venous reservoir, about 750 cc's, mm -hmm. but we don't ever leave zero in the reservoir. We'll usually put some uh, in there. So it's about 1,000 to 1,100. Uh, that includes with the cardioplegia uh, primed. Now we'll flush the cardioplegia out. So the patient impact, I would say, is probably a liter. No, I, if you don't wrap, it's probably about a liter. <laughs> you do wrap. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, um, your palming solution is mixed between crystalloy and colloy and albumin oil. Yes. I mean, that's recipe. So when I do a case, I'm very aggressive when it comes to albumin. Mm. So I will go on bypass with a complete, because I use vacuum assist mm. and an open reservoir. So I will have no volume in the venous line. Mm -hmm. I'll drain the venous line and oh. get rid of all that volume. I'll run my volume in the oxygenator, just the heparinized uh, uh, plasma light or whatever, to zero. And then I'll add uh um, the minimum amount of albumin i'm going to put in mm -hmm. is uh is 50 grams mm -hmm. so i'll put 50 grams of albumin i'll okay. put 12 and a half grams of manitol mm -hmm. i'll put uh whatever else we're going to put amacar mm -hmm. whatever uh uh we're going to drug we're going to use i'll put all of that cocktail in there and then i'll run the level down mm -hmm. to about 200 and oh. then when they go to connect the arterial line and we bump forward, I have enough to do that and have it be de-aired, mm -hmm. the aortic cannula to the pump circuit itself, okay. and then go on bypass, get my level up, and then start my arterial flow. So I, I, I would say that, you know, a lot of people, 12 and a half grams of amanitol is normal, 25 grams. That's their uh, iteration of aggressive, I, I, everybody gets 50 grams of albumin, whether they need it or not. Mm. And that's how I do my cases. Okay. It's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. half-life is relatively short and notwithstanding the concern, and you brought it up in your lecture, the very real concern about capillary leak syndrome, mm -hmm. most cardiac surgery patients 
are not, they do not have capillary leaks. Okay. So that is a very, that is real, I mean, that's a devastating diagnosis. And obviously you wouldn't give somebody with that albumin because uh, it's just going to exacerbate an already big problem. And most of the time, if they have severe capillary leak syndrome, they're going to die um, yeah. more than likely. So, uh, so, you know, but very rarely do you see that in cardiac surgery. Most of those patients are otherwise, they may not otherwise be healthy, but we, the note says when you write your, 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 your pre-op note, it usually says, otherwise healthy now they may be all messed up their 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 diabetes is out of whack and they have all these other issues going on but they're not dying they usually they're elective they walk into the hospital mostly most of our cases are elective uh procedures you agree with that mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. sorry yeah. <laughs> and yeah we need to avoid hypoglycemia um I mean, I, I want to say, um, I, do, I do the experiment, um, we, we call the insulin camp, you um, familiar with the insulin camp. Um, we call the experiment in, in insulin camp in, in animal study. Um, we need to infill the insulin and glucose in the proper way, because we, we want to see um, how it uptake the glucose in the body mm -hmm. and need to very proper. But you know, for the experiment, sometimes um, like we start, sometimes it's high, um, but glucose um, is not proper between the infusion rate of insulin and high, but and glucose are infused, and and then we we saw the the urine output um, very high urine, and um, very effect on animal condition. So that's a very keep in mind from from um, my experience from the the experiment. Hyperglycemia very need to concern. Um, I mean, during the operation, during the CPB, it's effect a lot. It's effect a lot. Sometimes you you saw the urine output. The, oh, there's a high urine output. Maybe it's not good. Maybe that is the, in the hyperglycemia condition of the mm -hmm. patient. We need to to concern about this also. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but you know, of course, I mean, we give mannitol to 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 uh, uh, to stimulate an osmotic diuresis and. You know, most of the time somebody walks into the emergency room and they can't quench their thirst. Mm -hmm. You know, they basically, they have great urine output for a period of time, right? <laughs> yeah. So sometimes hyperglycemia, mm -hmm. but it may decrease renal perfusion, but you're still forcing an osmotic mm -hmm. diuresis that yeah. is from a different reason. The diuresis mm -hmm. is occurring for a different reason. Yeah. 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 And that may be deleterious to the kidney, I'm assuming, is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, that, that's I want to point out. Sometimes you, you sort of good, um, good for urine output, very good for maybe it's not good. Maybe some condition effect on the high urine folate. That hyperglycemia is one of the factors in this. And um, yeah, avoid to like uh, some medication. Um, I mean, from from the clinical recommendation, you need to avoid some medication that toxic on on your nephron on the kidney. That's all that may be help. Finally, even if AKI occur, the transfer of information to on caregivers, medi medication, um, and patient education are essential to reduce the risk of long term complication. I appreciate in 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 this word um, from the publication. Yeah, that is all of my and I have um, the last slide. Hey, wait for you do it. Hey, Magic, can you get Vicky and uh, Vicky uh, and Christina if they're if Christina is still here, please wait before you do the slide. Oh, for my last slide. Yes. Okay. If you don't mind. All right. 
Then you call Kimberly. Mm -hmm. Kimberly's right here. No, I said if AKI occurs. Oh, then, then we call, call Kimberly. Kimberly. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Here we go. Last slide. I'll go to last slide. We're ready. <laughs> uh, I, I try um, Joe program, um, I mean, on, on May or April, on May. On May, that's the last time that I, I came here. Yes, yeah, in and May. I, and yes, I, and I share with you. I have so many questions during our as a perfusionist, and I dream to like study physiology, and renal autoregulation is the main part that I'm, I'm very interesting in. And finally, after I graduated a PhD, <laughs> I emailed to to some professor. <laughs> I emailed to you. I email. I am a perfusionist. I don't know that you know perfusionist or not, but I email you like this. Very long email. I'm, I'm very shy. I should not do that. Why I email to Alpine um, for the position, but it's very long email, but he read. Uh, yeah, finally, um, I, I was your postdoc in yeah. 2017 and 2002 year with Dr. Nava. I work on the renal regulation, um, the, the video that I show you. And from the, uh, the video that I show you, we got five award. You remember that? Mm -hmm. um, one of five award, um, they invite both of us together, awardee and mentor, and they show this picture together. And um, and you um, say to me on that day, you say congratulations, and I say thank you. And again today, I'll say thank you, <laughs> and thank you everybody. That's it. All of my talk. And uh, and Dr. Navar. We understand that you're, and, and I don't know if this is true, I'm just, I'm asking first, but is it true that you're going to be stepping down as chair of the Department of Physiology at Tulane after 34 years? Next week. And I'm sure that you have, you have mentored many a, uh, a, a, a PhD postdoctorate study uh, uh, student, fellow, I'm not sure exactly yes, what term yes. you use. Yes and yes. yes, yes yeah. But no doubt Dr. Yes. Kultani was your favorite. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. No doubt, no doubt. No well, doubt. For, for your 34 years of, of service to this profession and for your time that you did for us here, humbly, I can only say thank you and thank you as well, and for all of us, thank you. It's been really, uh, and everyone out in everyone out in Web World. It's been very gratifying. It's been very gratifying. But I will still probably I may still have students, but but no longer after November one, I will no longer be chair. But that's okay. Thirty-four years, you're on a good ride. That's had a, a had that's a, a good ride. <laughs> that's an amazing lifetime. It's an amazing lifetime. Well, thank you for all you've done for us today. We've learned from both of you just an incredible amount, and we can't thank you enough. Jim, I know that you are good friends with uh, Dr. Tabby. Uh, why don't I let you, if it's okay, close us out. Okay, well, I just want to say, so what cop, thank you, thank you. Um, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to spend this Saturday morning and afternoon with all of you fine individuals and fine professionals thank you thank you very much thank oh, you thank jim you. we appreciate you <laughs> vicky you. 
thank you for putting all of this together, helping with all of that you've done, all the arrangements, bringing Dr. Navarre and Dr. Tabby here, feeding us. David, Magic, I want to thank you guys for everything you guys did to make this program look as great as it did. And uh, notwithstanding the few little technical glitches, I thought it went fantastic. Um, and I appreciate that all very much. They, they've said nothing. You could, uh, huh? You're welcome. Thank you. And thanks to Kimberly. Too. And thanks to Kimberly. Kimberly. Yes, our our resident intensive care patient management expert. Thank you very much. All right, we'll see you all next month uh, for our final program of the year. And but this was a special program again. Jim, I will make sure you get a certificate uh, so that you can have the 5.7 credits. Actually, I think this program should have been approved for 20, um, but 5.7 is the most we're going to get out of it. Uh, but you certainly okay. deserve that. Thanks again for your time. Okay, we'll see you all in November. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.